0: Welcome back to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I'm Cameron, and with me as always is Michael. Hi. You know, uh, sometimes we don't know everything, Michael. Did you know that?
1: No, I, I do know everything, and I can account for everything. I'm Big Model Michael.
0: So, Big Model Michael, uh, <laughs> I've, I've heard you can make a
1: model for everything. Is that true?
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Easy. Whether Rest you're hands a, gainist,
1: a simulationist, or a narrativist, Big Model Michael has you covered. Now, what about things outside the model, so, such
0: as, uh, I don't know... Um, what's the opposite of heliocentrism is that part of the model or is that a different <laughs> part of the model
1: is it's, are you count would you count geocentrism as the opposite of heliocentrism I might well it could be or like would it be a- everything it would it be everything revolves around the moon <laughs> that's what I was gonna say it could be Lunocentrism it could be <laughs>
0: uh, asteroid beltocentrism right everything is <laughs> rotating around the the spindle that is the
1: asteroid belt mm-hmm. uh, I don't know yeah. but, but is that part of the big model or is that different? Oh, yeah. No, that sounds pretty uh, gamest to me. (laughs)
0: Okay, great. Uh, Well, you know, this episode, uh, we're doing a book called Tabletop RPG Design in Theory and Practice at the Forge, 2001 to 2012, Designs and Discussions. It's a mouthful of a title by William J. White. Uh, We'll talk about William J. White in just a minute, but... um, We did uh, the last episode on the elusive shift. Ooh, Uh, I still don't know where it
1: is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it was a terrible episode. It was just me uh, like uh, digging around and camouflage the whole time (laughs) in the underbrush. Uh, So we did that last time um, and uh, to get a sense of where, where did RPG stuff come from? And uh, we decided to read this book this time. Because uh, The Forge is like a big deal. And if you don't know what The Forge is, that's okay. We're going to talk about it. But uh, we were talking about this book. Uh, We were talking about this book with a good friend of ours. And (laughs) that friend had so many ideas about (laughs) the book that I simply said, maybe you should just be on the show.
2: (laughs) Maybe we can have this conversation uh, in a professional capacity three weeks from now. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. uh, For, as they say, content. <laughs> um and uh so, uh, so we did that, so joining us today is uh i you know what what yeah, are you what are you I guess Narrative so. person, critic, general smart person. Uh,
2: excuse me, I'm the IP director for Possibility Space. No, oh, so that's sorry, my official man. terrible title. Mm-hmm. I hate it. <laughs> it was world building director, and then I got the job, and they made me IP director instead. And it was frustrating for me because it sounds way more corporate, but it means I do get to throw my elbows around when someone makes a bad idea, and I'm like, well, before the IP, I think it would be better, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So, you know, <laughs> that's how IP directors talk. That's my IP director voice. It's very convincing. In person mm-hmm.
0: it's pretty good yeah that's pretty yeah. pretty intimidating and uh ip oriented voice <laughs> uh. it's like it's like you and uh wait uh was it kathleen kennedy that's right yeah 100 <laughs> uh-huh. percent you're both very authoritative when it comes to ip yeah uh the but yeah so we had to, we we um uh, we asked Austin on the show, partially, you know, and you can speak to this uh, a little bit, Austin, but partially because you are definitely a little bit more connected to these spaces than we are. I think that yeah. I, I would be panicking about talking about this book a little bit more if you were not on the show uh, for this episode, because there's a little bit of this is a book that is about a web forum mm-hmm. and some other stuff around it that existed for about a decade. Um, and a lot of the roots of contemporary, like, tabletop game design, RPG game design, are in this forum. And the the book um, does a really good job of setting the stakes and trying to give you a sense of what's going on with it. But also, there's some big pieces that are uh, kind of missing if you weren't there, I think. I think there's that some is con- true. Yeah. yeah, I think there's some connective threads. So I think you'll be around uh, to help us draw some connective threads here. I hope uh, so. I hope so, too. If not, we're going to have a bad time.
2: (laughs) For people who do not know me at all, uh, I am Austin Walker. I think most folks know me from Waypoint and from Giant Bomb before that as a critic and journalist um, and podcast-voiced. Uh, before that, I was I was an academic. Um, I, I did my master's at CalArts in Aesthetics and Politics, uh, and then I was pursuing a media studies PhD uh, at the University of Western Ontario, where I also did a bunch of work with the digital labor group. Um, uh, I did not finish that PhD, and instead I went to giantbomb.com to pay my rent uh, because my funding had run out. That's how academia works sometimes. Um, uh, and along the while, I was uh, starting and running uh, and, and kind of show running a podcast called called friends at the table which is an actual play podcast actual play not in the meaning that comes up in this book the even mm-hmm. though they, they have a shared root uh, is what i would say mm-hmm. um and we'll talk about that later um uh, uh and and because of that and because of my love of role-playing games i've been in and around these communities for a long time i've been to some of the conventions that come up not the specific convention um, there might be a specific convention in here around the, the right time of like uh, White talks about a a North Jersey indie RPG convention. I'm like, I've been to a bunch of those. I know where those are. I I might have been there at the same time. Um, uh, And and generally, have been in in and around these communities. Um, I will say outright that I am so much more of a lurker than a poster. I don't have any posts on the Forge, or if I do, it was one once when I was still in undergrad. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I doubt it was good. And I doubt anyone, I doubt it was anything. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it was probably me being like, I don't understand with great power, but I want to run it for my friends, you know? Uh, and with great power, it comes up in this book a couple of times. It's a really good uh, uh, superhero story game. Um, uh, but in the time since I've been around a lot of um, uh, kind of RPG communities, and uh, I can speak to some of the community changes and the ways in which uh, the the hobby, quote unquote, as it's often referred to by by folks in it, uh, has changed uh, and, and has come uh from the forge and also can speak maybe more directly to some of the things that people now talk about when they think about the forge um as such I know some of the people in this book and and I mean I know that's not that's not that's kind of old hat for y'all as academics reading books from by other academics and this is not a journalism you know podcast but I still have that in my blood that I that I need to disclose any any
0: proximities otherwise people yell at me on the internet mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Well, so. we, we won't yell at you. Thank you. you know. I appreciate it. I, but I will put a siren in anytime you mention someone's name so that people know <laughs> very clearly. <laughs> you know, that I've like said Vincent a name. Baker. Yeah, you've said a name <laughs> yeah. just so they can yes. go look it up.
2: Uh. <laughs> Um, is it true, Austin? Okay. You support Vincent Baker on Patreon. <gasps> yes, yes, it's true. That's a true fact, yeah.
0: Okay, well, so let's kind of dive right into it, because I think this is a book that we're going to have a lot to talk about. Big capital uh, ideas here first. So first we need to, like, find out what's going on with <laughs> uh, William J. White, because I didn't do that before. Michael, I believe you have looked that up. Uh, so let, let's get some biographical information, and then uh, and then we'll
1: talk about method, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so William J. White is an associate professor in the Department of Communication, Arts and Sciences at Penn State Altoona. Uh, and I think this might be his only book. There's not like a listing of publications on his faculty page. But I did find another list of publications that were all just kind of journal articles. Uh, but he is through and through a comm guy. Uh, all of his publications have been in comm journals about uh, various things, not just tabletop games, but a lot of kind of like... Uh, You know, public memory sort of stuff. There was like a one paper about um, sort of like nine eleven memorials and things of that nature. Uh, So, uh, com is a is a strange discipline, and I think maybe you can speak more to that, Cameron. But uh, from my perspective, this all seems it's it's very commie in that way not in the uh, hammer and sickle way
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah i mean you know comm i i got a degree my phd is from a media studies program that was housed in a comm department um we had three kind of uh different degree programs with very different faculty in it but it, but it was in comm um so you in my program you could do i think it was maybe common rhetoric uh was the traditionally kind of comm comm degree we had mm-hmm rhetoric and society which was another one which is a little bit kind of um social science methods and then what i did which was moving image studies which was like what what if we pretended like all the other stuff didn't exist and we just <laughs> talked about like uh media theory all day long and and uh italian cinema <laughs> so uh you know i i have this weird experience of taking a lot of classes with calm people being in an apartment with a lot of calm people very traditional calm people um, and yet not really being a part of that world and like having weird conversations where you, you like talk to a com person or, you know, from my perspective, talking to a com person and being like, oh my gosh, we don't even agree on the same definitions for the same words. Um, and then being <laughs> housed in the same department. And so, yeah, I, I would say that, that this book in a general sense, you know, methods wise reads to me like a com book in the sense of it, uh, it's very mixed methods, uh, there's some uh, digging into like post counts on the Forge forum. There's drawing some kind of network maps to understand the kind of weight that's involved in, uh, you know, like who is posting and, and what is the effect that has on the thread. There's some discourse analysis. There is some, um, uh, in the sense of like what, what are people saying and what does that mean, what they're saying? Um, there are interviews. There's a lot of interviewing in this book of firsthand interviews. I really want to talk about the the way that that works in that book or in this book, because it, it's quite odd. I think the way that white uh, fits that stuff into the book. Um, so, you know, generally when we read a book, the reason I'm saying all this, so, you know, and, and kind of opening the door to talk about method is number one. I think listeners to the show know that I like talking about method. That's the thing that matters to me is like how what are what are the assumptions you have when you come to an object and how does that inform what you take away from it? That's very important for me. Um, but the other thing is, is that this is not shaped like I think a book we would normally do, which would be: you come in, you uh, you introduce your object, whatever the thing is, and then you say, "Here are the thinkers I'm involved with," or "Here is the specific method that that I'm engaging with." Right? So. Uh-huh. Um, you know, thinking here about, uh, uh, Christopher Patterson's book, right? Open world empire, which, which says I'm going to be looking at contemporary or Patterson says they're going to be looking at contemporary gaming culture through the lens of, uh, queer studies, Asian American studies, um, and kind of international, um, theorizations, you know, kind of, uh, intersecting in the post-colonial theory. Right. Uh, or I'm trying to think of another book or, or even just the John Peterson book that we just did. Right. Which says, Uh, You know, Peterson doesn't use these words, but it's very clear that he is going into these uh, discussions about role-playing at the birth of the genre and drawing a historical argument at the same time as doing discourse analysis. So what happened and then what are people saying that create what happened? Uh, It's very delineated and very clear. This book does not do any of that. It goes in a thousand different directions all at one time, and I think sometimes makes that... Pretty difficult to read, but also offers up some really interesting opportunities for seeing the shape of the object. Um, mm-hmm. You know that that we might not get otherwise. I don't know. Did y'all have other thoughts, feelings about method?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think that'll come out as we talk through the mm-hmm. process here. Um, I, I I came into it. Um, I got through the first chapter expecting that it would then go on to be. Either a work with a sort of theoretical push, which I don't think it has, or something more like an ethnography, um, Mm -hmm. uh, something like Communities of Play or Play Between Worlds um, by Pierce or Taylor, uh, uh, respectively. Mm -hmm. Um, And and while it is true that white was in this community, which I think is a super important thing to – Understand and ground much of this work in. Uh, this is this is not someone from outside of the forge realizing what its importance was and then digging through the archives. Um, this is uh, you know, <laughs> much like our friend Michael uh, and Homestuck. <laughs> this is someone who was there uh, and who often uh, is drawn into relitigation, uh, uh, whether or not it's intentional. Um, uh, but it's not that style of uh, ethnographic study towards an argument. Um, uh, I don't. I, I don't think there's an argument in this book. There, are, it White brings the arguments of the Forge to the table for us to look at, but I don't know that his goal is for it to coalesce into anything other than here was the Forge. It existed at a particular time and place. Uh, you know, produced these particular objects, both theoretical and and you know, uh, frankly, and these products um, and. Uh, uh, and this is the way in which it touched the hobby. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah, I would say that the key term for this book probably in in uh, terms of what its project is, is uh, one that gets used a couple times, uh, reconstruction. Yeah. right. Yeah. It, it is a reconstruction of what the forge was like, what people were talking about, how they talked about it, and kind of, uh, you know, the, the history of ideas as they got processed through the forge.
2: I guess I'm being extremely not extremely generous but if i'm if i'm if i really want to give something a, a lot of credit here in the book is is if the lesson of the forge is go read the threads and then make something that is what the book concludes with is that he makes mm-hmm. something that is about how uh, making a play object making a game that can somehow theoretically reveal something about maybe not a, a capital t truth but uh, our relationship to the questions being asked right there is mm-hmm. a, a creative agenda being pursued uh, uh that, that he delivers with a, a game at the end of the day and i think that that's interesting even if it, it does not fully even if if there's other versions of this book that maybe would have have tickled my fancy more
0: yeah yeah you know it's a uh, um I, I think a big chunk of this book is—and this is going to sound dismissive, and I don't intend it that way, but there's no other word really for it. It's mostly reportage. It's what what occurred. Um, and uh, if you're not uh, interested in, in you know going and digging into it yourself—and I think it's like if, if there's no other thing in this episode that we talk about that's interesting to you, if you were going to write about this era of design— Uh, you know, of of tabletop design, this might be the only real significant academic resource in those terms. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of theorization that comes out of this in in engagement with the Forge and publications, but as far as like a historical reconstruction, here's what's up and here's how these things ran into one another. um, You know, the the granularity of that we'll get into, but in a general sense, I think this might be the thing, which is how I came across the book. Uh, You know, people, I think the way that we came across this book is that uh, people in the discord were saying, Hey, you might want to check this out. Um, because it's like the thing that does this. So so we can well, and see Well to its credit it, it, um I think there's probably a version of this book that does lots
2: of summarizing and does not have a lot of references. Um it does not actually go to like hey, here is how how here is how the terms kicker and bangs came to be used inside of RPG theory. This this the primary text of the of the book doesn't necessarily get into to a lot of these these terms as deeply as I as I would like, um, but check those references, there are links, you can go back and read those posts. And So, honestly, just as a uh, as a collection of, of links to particular forum posts, if you're doing your own work in, in this space, that might be useful to you. I don't know that it's full-price textbook useful to you, but it might be, maybe maybe you still belong to an academic institution unlike me and have access to libraries. So I'm not access to, <laughs> to libraries, but you know
0: what I mean.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, this is a uh, Paul Grave book. Uh, it's the, from in the Paul Grave Games and Context. Paul Grave is a for-profit for publisher. You know, like, all their books are expensive. This uh-huh. book is expensive. It's like, what, 90 bucks or something like yeah, that? It's like 100 bucks, yeah. Okay, yeah, something like that. And look, I got a book coming up. It's 90 bucks. So, yeah. you know, I, can't, I don't have... Uh, Uh, you know, this is a reality of the price for libraries, um, you know, model, but I mean, it severely impacts who gets access to it I actually bought this. There was a sale. Paul Grave had a sale a couple months ago where, uh, they all, I think everything was 50% off and that's when I bought it. But even then it was more than, you know, your average, average book is. So, um, you know, people should be aware of that, um, going in, but I think with all that said, unless Michael, you have a thing you want to say about any of that, we can jump to the preface.
1: No. <laughs> are, are you telling me you're looking down and whispering? <laughs> I'm looking down, and seeing everyone demanding their copy of William J. White's. <laughs> I'm like, no, wait for the Palgrave sale. Uh, so, I, let me say this: I, I,
0: I, the one additional thing about just general form. This, I think, for for me, uh, this book is kind of frustratingly ordered. Um, and, and I think we'll get into that because there, there are oftentimes when critical information about something that we're talking about in the book or that white is talking about in the book only is explained like 80 pages later after it's first introduced. And that can be very, um, difficult to get through. And I have all kinds of places in my notes where I was like, okay, this is where this is introduced and this is where the other thing is. But, um, this is a critical piece of information to know at the very beginning, and this is only revealed, I believe, on page 41, unless it was earlier and I missed it. Um, the the Forge total, because it's a closed forum now, right? Like, thing is done. It's all archived. Um, it had 4,500 posters right, right in there and 266,000 posts. So it's a uh, pretty limited thing. And it's not really that large. Uh, As far as one of the one of the
2: there's a point at which there is a breakdown of how many posts per day is going on during one of the the kind of high periods of Mm -hmm. this form. And it was like, you know, a post a post or two per day, maybe, you know, and that's the I think that that uh, White would say that that reflects the style of uh, discourse, uh, just discourse that was happening there, which was. Mm Um, very contemplative, uh, slow to reply, but comprehensive, etc. cetera. Um, I don't, I, I don't know that he makes that direct argument along with those numbers anywhere, uh, mm-hmm. but those are two threads you could tie together in this book.
0: Mm-hmm. But, but, and I say all those numbers just to say like, it's not that big. I think Michael, you might have read more Homestuck posts
1: at this point than total posts in the forge. Is that true? Uh, I guess so. (laughs) That's a really awful way to think about my life. (laughs) But I've read, you know, uh, I'm currently, I think, in the fourth something awful thread, so. What would you say Andrew Hussey's big model of authorship is? (laughs) Oh, no.
2: (laughs) I think they have one. I kind of think they do.
0: (laughs) Uh, Check out Homestuck Made This World to learn about Michael's big model of Andrew
1: Hussey's big model.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Is Andrew Hussey the Ron Edwards of web comics?
1: Wait until we get to the last chapter here. Or no, the uh, penultimate chapter. Well, longest well, thread,
0: uh, et cetera, <laughs> locked after blah, blah, blah. By a million posts. But so so I, I I say, again, I just say all those numbers to say that like, this is very trackable, right? Like mm-hmm. one could, you know, and anyone, I think, you know, I think the archive might be a little bit clunky to use like most archives are, but anyone could go back and like re-engage with the Forge, right? This is not a thing that, that White is uniquely able to do, but this is an archive and a resource that other people could go do. And like you were saying, Austin, if you're curious about any ideas in the book or that we talk about you can just go and look at the original threads about it uh, which is pretty cool but the book begins with a preface the skein of Hephaestus <laughs> <laughs> um i i i don't know what do we think about this this is this is truly a preparatory chapter in that it really isn't an introduction it is more of a like here's a big set of ideas about what I was doing with this book it, it's a little odd I'll be honest um but anything stick out to people here uh, about what white's saying about the book it's because it's kind of tone setting right it's the narration you would you, say you,
2: you know calm stuff better than I do um is it normal for normals too strong uh, mm-hmm. it, 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 do do com writers often rev- go over what their reviewers of the book said about previous, Drafts of the of the work because no. <laughs> there's a degree here that I came across feeling like you know there's a page or two about like well, this reviewer said that I had too much North American focus and this reviewer was concerned that I you know didn't draw a hard enough line between posts on the forum and academic work and I felt kind of like okay like. I don't assume that that's where I'm going to come from. You don't need to put up the, the the walls against me here as your reader. I promise you, I'm going into this with good faith.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I've I've now gone through the process. I've, I've completed one academic book, and I'm working on a second one. And I've gotten pretty far along in the process. So I can only speak from my own experience, right? I would not say this is a disciplinary, normative thing, right? Yeah. Like, this is not a thing where you're, like, opening up things from the com field, and you're, like, constantly seeing this kind of thing. Normally, the way that someone would approach uh, this kind of feedback, and we talk about it on the show occasionally, where it's like, oh, you can feel the peer reviewer here, you know, that I think it's the Mm -hmm. way that we would normally talk about this. But, you know, in an introduction, when the flow of the introduction is kind of interrupted and it's like, I've chosen to focus on (laughs) games from 1988 to 2003 uh, (laughs) in North America because blah, 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 and you get two paragraphs that are kind of legitimation of the project, right? That's often because the peer reviewer gave some sort of feedback like that, right? Like... Uh, and, and often the the response to peer reviewer feedback of, say, you're focusing too much on North America, the, the response would normally be just to justify why you did the thing you did. Um, because ultimately, especially for a project like this, it's not like you can go in and change the whole project. That's It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, but normally I would say that that kind of revision would happen in a chapter, um, you know, and I've, I've gone through this process of, of having to legitimate my decisions in the way I talk about stuff. And I'll be honest, in my book, I have a, a, a paragraph that does speak a little bit about the peer review process for one of my chapters just because it was, it was really weird.
2: We're not going to be able to have this conversation without me constantly feeling that we are also having a conversation about the forge for better and worse. Right. Because mm. the experience mm-hmm. you just described is... It feels like it could have been taken from one of White's, you know, thread analyses uh, of, you know, senior veteran form posters and someone who is posting for the first time at the forge and their patience as they kind of unveil for the person or unfold what the forge is good at and how it's about receiving the sort of good, you know, uh, uh, good faith, you know, engagement and response and feedback to a project and blah, blah, blah. And like that is <sighs> – that is part of, I think, also what White's project is. Uh, it's it's worth saying that one of the things that White tries to establish in, in the preface and then and then kind of is dotted throughout the rest of the, the work is that the Forge has a reputation as being insular and hostile. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wants to be the person who is saying, hey, actually, what it did was produce a discursive space for this high-level, individual, personal engagement – uh, with projects that otherwise would not have gotten them and with people who desperately needed a space to talk about games in this way and their own design in this way or maybe not needed but benefited greatly from it um, uh, and how that ends up spiraling out in different directions is interesting but it comes back down to that, that, that experience you just described of hey you're making a thing you want to make a thing hey is this a thing I should make and then someone's saying like well have you thought about XYZ and you going yeah that's <laughs> not I'm thinking about I'm thinking about ABC and then them going, well, but X, Y, Z, and that's just what talking is. But but it is right. also like a very sort of, it's a very particular kind of 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 conversations, a very particular kind of communication that I think this book is very interested in as a topic, even if maybe I don't know that it, it's always like at the forefront of the actual kind of studious work going on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, because ultimately, uh, uh, White's argument is that it's dialogic. You know, the the, the forge operates through dialogic procedure. Mm -hmm. Um, And we get a couple chapters on, like, how that procedure operates, you know, like moderation and the way that one posts and things like that, although that does come uh, at the end. Uh, I don't know, Michael, do you have thoughts about uh, this preface before I read the, like, summary (laughs) sentence from it and then we move (laughs) to chapter one?
1: Uh, uh, Nothing much to add other than uh, as someone who... I hesitate to say that I was totally ignorant of the forge before this book because I feel like I've I've floated around these spaces enough that almost certainly I have heard people talk about it or mention it. You know, I've listened to enough podcasts where Austin has been on it where it might have come up at some point. Um, But uh, uh, the the fascinating thing about this was the way that White introduces the forge conceptually and then describes uh, uh, Austin gestured at this kind of like, Uh, the reputation that it had uh, of being like insular, uh, self-indulgent pretentious uh, all this stuff and it was just like, yeah, that's what happens when you create a community on the Internet in like the mid 2000s, where a bunch of people get to talk about something like everyone else who doesn't want to be there comes up with like this same roster of accusations of what's wrong <laughs> with the culture on this website. Um, and I just thought that was extremely fascinating as someone who's been on the Internet for a long time to, to notice kind of like the structural echoes of just a million debates I've had about uh, uh, digital communities in my life. <laughs>
2: Is a very mid two thousands book, not mm-hmm. in the way that it's written. I'm not saying that it's written like a mid two thousands comic book, which I don't have any expertise in. But in the way that, like, oh my god, I've been teleported. I've been I've been transported back in time to a style of of uh, writing, uh, especially some of these forum posts mm-hmm. that are that are so of the time. It's it's. And it's not—it's not nostalgia making. It's—I—it makes me afraid of the things I may have said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, no, it, it, no, I think that's exactly right. I that reading, especially the long quotations, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes because this book has page-long quotations from these threads and you know, long-form arguments, and it's like this is so tedious. Like every part uh-huh. of this is tedium mm-hmm. to listen to. Or From to, people to, to who read. I
2: respect greatly. There's a Vincent Baker post in this that made me go make sure my live journal wasn't accessible. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I used to write like this. this. No
0: one can know. Is it is it the one about going to buying the guy the drink?
2: It sure is. Oh, man. <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, yeah, we'll I want to talk that. about
0: that. Um, okay, so let me let me uh, because again, this preface is a preface. It, it you know it does a lot of work to say like here's why I wrote the book the way I did, and here's why I care about this, um, and it has a pretty good. Um, a uh, set of statements near the end of it that that are really helpful for keeping in mind for the rest of the book because I think that the the forge remains in focus, but the reason we're talking about the forge changes across the book. Um, but here are the reasons why. Right. So, so first, this is on page X. If if people care, uh, in classic uh, game Studies, study study buddies format, we've been talking for thirty four minutes, so we've gotten to page X. <laughs> um, but, wow, I'm uh, really here. I really yeah, here. <laughs> how does it feel? <laughs> Just Uh, as I
2: always dreamed.
0: Great. Uh, so, so, um, White says that, you know, one of the things that matters here is that the forge is a, and this is, uh, White's term, a communication artifact. Uh, it, you know, it has textual residue remainder or the byproduct of a host of interactions and exchanges among the people who helped constitute the indie scene of the first decade of the 21st century. All right, So it's like this thing that's kind of been, you know, covered over, but it's also ossified. We can go look at it and, and it gives us a picture about what this looked like. Now, a thing that we do need to keep in mind, it will come up over the rest of the book is what are the other communication channels through which these people are interacting? Mm. Um, white doesn't have access to that. So we don't really get too much more of it. But you know, this is also a time in which uh, like chat clients were huge and these people, Mm -hmm. and some of these people live together, right? Like, um, it's important to, to know that, but that's one thing, right? That the forge is a communications artifact and we can say things about the artifact. Um, and then, then White says, this is on the same page, says that there are three interconnected... I'm just going to read the whole thing. There are th- Quote, there are three interconnected claims that I think emerge from my reading of threads and my conversations with others. These claims amount to a sociocultural narrative of the Forge as a community, a rationalized reconstruction of the Forge's ideas about TRPGs, and the rhetorical analysis of an important genre of interaction at the Forge, the actual play thread. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to... Uh, like th- these go on for paragraphs, so I'm just gonna read like the-, the thesis line right So first, the forge's focus on encouraging people to design, publish, and play their own games contributed to a flowering of participatory culture in the tabletop RPG scene during the first decade of the 21st century and was personally inspiration to many Forge participants, including me, okay right So design, publish and play very important. Uh, second, the theoretical framework known as the big model that grew out of the conversations at the Forge is consistent with academic theories of role-playing games. Going back to Gary Gary Fine's seminal 1983 uh, ethnography of TRPG play shared fantasy. Note, this is the book we're doing next episode. So <laughs> if you're curious about that, which it comes up. Uh, and then third, the nature of the Forge is an object constituted in communication. It's made of threads meant that it is probably the most productive to regard the things that are said at and about the Forge as the offerings of individual interlocutors contributing to a field of discourse. So those are the kind of big three things here, right? That that the, the Forge has an ethic of design and then publication that matters, an independent production that matters, uh, that it made the big model that is impactful in a significant way, And that it's not kind of one object, it's a bunch of heterogeneous interactions from individual people, and White tries to do a pretty good job of, like, really showing the different uh, groups and the different uh, approaches to these problems. So those are the big three ideas that carry through the rest of the book, and each chapter kind of gets at them in, I think, a different way. Um, So with all of that said, maybe we can go to chapter one, Before the Forge, The Discourse of RPGs,
1: 1974 to 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, this chapter is interesting, uh, not the least because it has, uh, you know, 30 years of history, um, very, very compressed. Uh, but I understand why it does that because really this is about like building the runway to get us to actually discussing the forge. Uh, so, uh, a lot of this is like, uh, stuff that we're getting in snapshot that is covered in much more detail in like John Peterson's book, which we read last time talking about the early development of TRPGs uh, and, and cor- sort of that whole scene. But it goes beyond Peterson, who stops at about, I think he stopped at, like, 1980, basically, mm-hmm. uh, because he was working with such a dense archive. And we get uh, sort of a stronger sense of, like, the corporatization of the hobby mm-hmm. uh, through the 80s and 90s. Uh, but the, the the important thing for The Forge is uh, the the thread that Peterson picked up, the the... I'm trying to think how to put this, like the practitioner theorist, right? Uh, like people trying to come up with models for what tabletop play is. How do you uh, accommodate uh, different play styles or different groups? And, and what is what is a model that is going to be most supple for the most uh, people? Um, hmm. And so eventually we get the internet. The internet happens. Uh, and RGFA, which stands for something, I do not remember what. Um, uh, advocacy it's like a, is the a i just remember yeah. that part i don't remember it's like what a, the rest is it's like a usenet group i think or something mm-hmm. similar um and they come up with this like threefold model of dramatist gameist, and simulationist and that's kind of the historically speaking the most important point uh, here because that's what's going to be developed kind of uh uh at the forge into their own sort of unique model. Uh but that's like big picture snapshot what this chapter is is doing and it culminates with the introduction of Ron Edwards and kind of like the uh tabletop like I guess uh, uh early blogosphere of people uh posting their their ideas uh like the the theorization, this is the other way of putting this, the theorization that Peterson covers very extensively that's happening in uh, at first fanzines and then later on in the glossies, uh, this travels to uh, blogs and the internet and forums.
2: Yeah, I think the, the the I think that's probably the most important thing from this chapter. But I do think that the commercialization and the uh, sort of calcification of the RPG is also extremely important. Um, you talk about Peter's book ending before that the kind of heavy commercialization swing um mm-hmm. and I think part of what part of what happens here and again this is something you can kind of uh thread together from statements at the beginning and the end of this book um uh but uh you talked about in the Peters book or uh, in the episode about the Peters book about how d and d is an unfinished product and that and that when it arrives it has to be completed uh and that uh you know house rules and you know table interpretation Uh, is a key part of how different uh, regional D&D groups uh, or kind of different groups of D&Ds performed in regions at at regional conferences and, and conventions ends up Creating a bunch of different types of visions of what role playing is, Um, and then and then and that book does talk about the creation of D and D Second Edition or Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which kind of completes the book. But it spends so much time with that notion of like RPGs are fundamentally open things; they're unfinished because there is always an element of interpretation at the table. Um, And and what I think this chapter, one of the things this chapter is trying to do, is say that in the pursuit of Uh, franchise in the pursuit Mm -hmm. of intellectual property, where a game is one node on a hub, one spoke on a hub, um, uh, that also produces t-shirts and cartoons and multimedia CDs. Um, As part of that, and just as part of the cycle of technique and technology in which objects do settle over time culturally, the role-playing game had settled to some degree, uh, uh, for most players, around ideas around, um, game books need to be big, thick things with huge amounts of flavor and uh lore and capital M myth because that's what gets mm-hmm. to get put on T-shirts. Uh, two. Um, they need to be um, uh, pushed through these big publishing houses. Those are who control it. It's not independent production at this point. Uh, uh, and, then, and then I think uh, three, this is where Ron Edwards' systems matter, you know, essay ends up coming up, that the system doesn't really matter in the culture of play. What matters is your group and your GM. Uh, it, it's It's the classic – canard that you hear on video game podcasts all the time, that any game can be fun if you're playing it with friends. Um, It's the idea that it's what we bring to these systems that really matter. Uh, You often will also find this uh, culturally, and I don't think this particular uh, enunciation was was raised here, but you'll find players uh, from this particular era, um, this kind of late 90s, early 2000s era, who will say stuff like, I just like it when a system gets out my way so that I can Mm -hmm. tell the story I want to with my friends. Um, And I think setting the stage here is very important, and and giving that context for what emerges, because it's it's truly against. There, you know, the the the, we talk about, uh, or 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 White talks about a number of these early blogosphere posts, uh, including the. It's the salad cart tipping over the salad, nuking the apple (laughs) cart. Nuking the apple cart, yeah. I think it's actually
0: the nuked apple cart. It's happened already.
2: It has already happened. Uh, Is is this this Edwards uh, uh, critique about uh, commercial RPGs? Um, uh, And then and then uh, you know there are other folks here, uh, uh, Mackey or McKay, also writing uh, against this this uh, emergence of of this central. Product, capital P product, RPG as product, uh, and as and not even as final product, but as kind of kickstart to huge media empire product, uh, and having those front and center, I think, is really important in understanding what the Forge is trying to do, or or maybe not even what it's trying to do. Though Ron Edwards does talk throughout this book, or is quoted throughout this book, as the Forge having this you know high objective from the very beginning uh, of of kind of changing uh, the way people engage with role playing games, but uh, I do think that at least understanding that this is the context in which, uh, you know, it is, it is being created and, and these conversations are responding to that context is super
0: important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there seems to be kind of two trajectories that the Forge responds to here, you know, and and White gives us all of the melange, right, <laughs> of, of angles this is coming to, but it really does seem to be two big ones. One is the one that you just talked about, right, this kind of ossification of what mm-hmm. uh, w- people could think that an RPG was, uh, uh, you know which mostly comes from Wizards of the Coast and mostly comes from um, White Wolf, yeah. you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Really, Vampire the Masquerade is like the big enemy in this book. You know, mm-hmm. if, if I don't know anything about the Forge and I try to reconstruct, well, what is the thing they hate the most? <laughs> it's not D&D, weirdly enough. It, it, it's, it's Vampire the Masquerade, which I think is quite interesting because for the most part, uh, you know, the, the vampire has faded from public consciousness for the yeah. most part. Uh, unless you're really into the hobby. Unless uh, you're yeah. checking
2: the Steam new games list, in which case there's at least three new vampire visual novels a year. So Yeah, I'm excited about that. That, <laughs> I'm that, that, that new part one. rules. Yeah, that one yeah. seems really cool. So <laughs>
0: we'll see. Uh. Yeah, but the so there there's something uh, you know, that that's interesting. They ossifies not just in like form ways, but that very particular companies and very particular ways of doing it.
2: It's a familiar response too. It it reminds me of being a leftist on the internet, getting mad at liberals for saying that they want like good things to happen, but hating the ways in which you might need to act to get them. Because part of what what comes up here, I mean there is a little section on vampire in this in this first mm-hmm. in this first chapter, but but throughout is this notion that like D&D doesn't promise anything but D&D. You know, mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. the kind of response to it. D&D is you know what you're getting. It's on the it's on the the cover. Uh Vampire sells itself as a system of storytelling. It's you're not play, you don't have a GM, you have a storyteller. Um it's it's sold on the, the notion of like high drama play. Uh its setting is built around the idea of Political intrigue, wheeling and dealing—you know, romantic rendezvous—but but but in terms of the system design, does it achieve those goals? Does it reward players for playing in those ways, or does it do something else? And it, it's the it's the sense of a bait and switch that seems to completely anger everyone involved mm-hmm. uh, in this scene. Um, And I kept, I keep, I keep finding myself saying they're right about this game. I'm still glad I played a bunch of vampire when when I was a teen though. (laughs) So,
0: (laughs) well, uh, so I, I think I've told this on the show before, but my only real experience with vampire, the masquerade was going to a comic book store, like the local comic book store when I was in college in the middle of the summer. So it's like, you know, it's in Georgia. So it's like a hundred degrees outside. And then there were Vampire the Masquerade LARPers outside oh, yeah. in the full asphalt, asphalt parking lot in straight-up Matrix clothes, right? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. whole body <laughs> pleather. Uh, Listen, and it just had to be the sweatiest day catch me,
2: Earth. Catch me at 11 p.m. at Jamaica Station in Queens, all blacked <laughs> out. Like, we're out here. We're doing Mind's Eye Theater LARP. We're doing it. It's It was a real thing. Are you wearing shades? Of course I'm, no, I'm not wearing shades, I have glasses and I could never afford oh,
1: prescription right. sunglasses. Vampires um, with the clip-on shades. With the clip-on shades. <laughs> I,
2: you know what, I may have had clip-on shades, I did, I have in my life in that era, I had clip-on shades, but mostly for driving I had to be safe. Uh, yeah, but like, you know, i cross crossing my arms Let me tell you, before it was the Wakanda crossing salute my arms. Before it was the Wakanda salute it was, this is how you show that you're obfuscated as a vampire the masquerade LARPer. That, <laughs> yes. that arm cross uh-huh. is the Mind's Eye Theater symbol for or i'm using my vamp- my vampiric obfuscation powers and
0: blending into the shadow right so uh well yeah, <sighs> you know that's uh <laughs> you should just you should just do a podcast austin where you just talk through this <laughs> games experience. i've been at, I, I, yeah games I I i've played
2: this is true because like it gets to be too traumatic, genuinely, because of bad because of bad actors.
0: Right. Well, you might need a uh, like a licensed professional as okay, part of the good. show. Yes. I mean, we can think about that. But so the other thing I wanted to bring up as part of the the other uh, kind of trajectory here that gets responded to is that White is doing a really good job here of saying here's where an idea emerged and here's who said it first, mm, which mm-hmm. in this blogosphere kind of moment the the who said what at what time, especially during this era, the late 90s and the early 2000s, that often gets lost, especially in the kind of hobby space or in the public sphere, right? In general criticism, uh, we've all been a part of that. You know, who said what at what time kind of matters, Uh and uh, acknowledging that. And so, you know, on page 19, we get this idea that this dramatist game simulationist kind of triumvirate triangle, depending on how you draw it, horseshoe. Mm. <laughs> I love that across this book, we learn that the way you draw the shape can be radically different depending on who you talk to. But that gets credited to someone named Mary Kooner. Um And so, you know, there, there are these words that kind of... Like, I've heard of this before, right? This kind of triangulation. I've heard of the big model before. But understood those as, like, group enunciations. Not as mm-hmm. things that a human being sat down and thought out and theorized out. Um, you know, White says at the beginning of this book that, that, uh, that some of the peer review was like, Hey, why are you treating... People in the public sphere, you know, hobbyist critics, uh, hobbyist theorizers, why are you treating them with the same weight as scholars? You know, is that a little bit weird? And and White actually creates like a bifurcated citation system to keep track of who is in what sphere. Um, I think that is bad. I mean, Me I, I'm, I, I empathize that White had to do that, but I think that someone writing a blog post has all the same like basic levels of citability and authority as... Henry Jenkins, right? Yeah. Like like those people are equally enunciating something in the world. Now the way that enunciation comes about and the way it's cited and the way it's proved, you have to treat those things differently because they're doing different things. They're different rhetorical objects. Uh, but the idea of pushing for a bifurcation of whether Mary Cooner is doing appropriate good work that is citable versus Henry Jenkins doing that work, that to me is like, I'm, I'm throwing that out. And I've actually received this peer review comment before, too. <laughs> so I'm, I'm speaking from an impassioned position. But mm-hmm. I really like that here. I like that there are these two very clear trajectories that get made in chapter one. Um, I also like this McKay thing where we get, quote, imaginary entertainment environments, <laughs> uh-huh. which is just transmedia that got yes. eaten by transmedia like five years later, um, which is pretty cool. Um, but it's exactly what you were talking about, Austin. You know, the idea that some of these companies, they, they, they're making T-shirts as much as they're making RPG, you know, things or they're making car- cartoons as much as they're releasing source books. And, um, you know, that here is called imaginary entertainment environments. <laughs> I think we should bring that back. Iees, yeah, uh huh. <laughs> I mean, Marvel is an oh, Iee, a thousand percent. Yeah, yeah. It's a, transmedia. That's like that's uh, cutting them a break in some ways, right? It's an Iee, right? Mm-hmm. Iees made this world. Actually, this is <laughs> yes, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Um. Good luck. Good luck with that, uh, Michael. <laughs> 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 with folding all this together in your big methods chapter. Uh, chapter two.
1: Seasons of the Forge, a structural history, 2001 to 2012. The Forge lived and died. Uh, <laughs> in, in a weird presentiment of this, I don't know, uh, I didn't put it in my notes exactly when this uh, conceit first bubbled up, but I, it, it feels like weirdly neat. Uh, like that, yeah, like the, the Forge is a, a space that is aware of its own history uh, and divides that history into four seasons, uh, spring, summer, fall, and winter, right? Uh, from its conception to, uh, its eventual shuttering in, in 2012. And each of these sections of, or each of these seasons, I should say, each one's about like three or four years, uh, correspond to different developments within the Forge specifically and its culture, and also as uh, we'll get into the next chapter and kind of like what's happening outside of the forums too as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: That could have been the book, right? Yeah. Like here mm-hmm. are the four seasons. Yes. Here yeah. are four chapters Ooh. that give us a, chron- a chronological engagement with the Forge. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I-, I think this is, you know, we're in chapter two now, so I, can, I think I can say... This is where I started to really have questions about how the book was structured. Um, I didn't know how big those questions would become because I didn't know what the following chapters would be quite yet, um, but I was asking myself as I read this – the structural history – and I mean the answer is because it's a structural history and it's it's not a, a discourse analysis here, but like where are the posts? Well, I, um, mm-hmm. There's lots in this chapter about what people think about the forge, what their experience is coming to the forge. Um, Again, what the reputation of the Forge begins to be, uh, how much posting there was, where that posting took place, the ways in which this was a form that knew its own death was coming. All that stuff is here. But like, there is not – I don't remember reading and my notes don't reflect – much in the way of here is what a post or a conversation on the forge looks like. We do eventually get that in this book much later in the fourth chapter, no, the fifth chapter, the fifth chapter. Mm -hmm. And I don't, having read it all now, I really think that this chapter and the fifth chapter at the very least should have been more connected. Um, The work that's done there that helps set the stage in the fifth chapter of what does, what does, actual conversation look like at Mm -hmm. the forge what are the types of conversations being had not just in the abstract but particularly here is an example of what two people talking about a a design question might look like but none of that is here and i think it's a weaker chapter for it
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah this chapter is really kind of dedicated to giving you a cast of characters uh, mm-hmm. As much as anything else right I mean the, the structural history here is quite literal right I mean yeah. uh, 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 and there's some fascinating analysis here or, or fascinating data gathering I guess I should say because I, I don't know how much the analysis is played out but you know like what is the rate of posting how many posts are, are there how does it happen. What you know? How are these posts connected within a given thread? How do response rates vary, right? And and those are all interesting, but 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 like you, Austin, you know, I had this kind of feeling of like, okay, well. Sure structure emanates from things that exist in the world right and Mm -hmm. and knowing about the structure is not particularly helpful if you don't know about what the content of the thing is um Mm -hmm. you know and and this is maybe a methodological difference right like i would never write this book but if i did write this book if only because i you know the the effort involved in like finding one individual form and doing the work i i'm i'm in awe of someone's focus and ability to do that because i just can't uh but you know, I I think I would choose start with like how do people talk? Like how do people say things to one another? Um and this is much more this chapter is much more interested in what is the structure through which uh conversation is is routed, and then who are the people who are doing it. And so this is when we get uh what, Ron Ron Edwards, and this is where we get um gosh, this huge Maza. Maza, uh, yeah. 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 I, there, there are a huge number of people who I got the sense that I should probably know who they are in the in the TG RPG space and I don't really know who any of them are mm-hmm. um, but but yeah uh,
2: we, we get this fantastic maybe this is an illustration of what I mean too we have that that fantastic chart uh, or graph uh, uh, figure 2.1, uh, 2.1 of the different um, uh, for the different, I guess, subforms or, or sections on the form uh, mm-hmm. uh, rising with post count and then plateauing as they're shuttered, um, which is fantastic visualization of how the form kind of like once had all of these different spaces for conversation. And by the end of it had closed most of them and focused in on like a, a couple of core, um, you know, very core to the identity of the Forge uh, mm-hmm. uh, subsections. Um, but again, what we mostly get is who is posting there, the rate of posting, and not much about, you know, again, abstractly, why does the actual play form stay open? I have the answer for you. But what's actually happening there, I do not. Um, mm-hmm. We do get some really fun specifics in terms of early. Moderation, um, or not even just particular moderation moments, but larger moderation uh, kind of uh, schema. Uh, so, for instance, um, uh, on page 39, um, there, there's the indie game design form on the Forge. Uh, and the prospective post quote, the prospective poster in indie game design was told if you cannot answer the question, What is my game about? do not start a thread. To enforce this rule, <laughs> many threads initiated in indie game design. Uh, that were hypothetical or speculative ideas about role-playing mechanics and processes, rather than being connected to an actual design and process, were moved to RPG theory, particularly during a rapid influx of newcomers in late 2002. And I actually think that that uh, archaeological work of of showing how and where the flows of different types of conversations happened uh, is, is really useful in terms of that big-picture vision of how the forge formed itself and where the different... Uh, I don't think white would use the word clicks, but the different clicks of, of creators and, and commentators uh, would go and, and wind up. And how does a form like the, the, uh, the, the, whatever the design theory form uh, mm-hmm. end up being important for us, the rpg theory form end up being important for a certain subset of time and then how does that respond when that form then gets or how do they respond when that form gets shuttered and people have to like move into actual play instead for instance i think mm-hmm. that work is is interesting um
0: uh, even without some of the examples that i would have liked to have seen so something i do think is really interesting yeah is this exact kind of like granulation that we get here i really love that chart too um that that is something that I think is missing from a lot of like discourse analysis kind of stuff, Michael. I'm looking forward to your chart, similarly of the, the <laughs> something awful forums and your uh, eventual work. But oh, good on Homestuck. But uh, I, I, you know, this chapter does a really great job of saying or of kind of drawing a uh, chronological perspective of what what's happening initially, right? Where people are talking about a lot of different stuff, and then how does it focus in on? what is the object in front and i was really thinking uh, you know what what is the object that we care about you know as as designers who go to the forge i was thinking a lot about the peterson book that we read last time right where peterson says hey did you know that the first 10 years of dnd and it's kind of uh, various uh, other things that exist around it of rpg uh play and design uh in that moment, did you know that those conversations that they had then are the exact same conversations we have now? <laughs> and that this might be inescapable for the, for the medium? And I actually think that's really interesting. When I was reading this chapter, I was thinking about a tweet that you, like, quote-tweeted the other day, uh, Austin, about someone, uh, someone in the TTRPG space being like, Hey... Ultimately, you can have all the ideas and theories that you want about RPG design, but you have to write the RPG you gotta make thing. Yeah, you got to uh-huh. make the thing. Yeah. And, and then you're like, quote, tweeted that with like, you know, some stuff that you were working on as like an account a personal accountability thing. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting that like, you know, in 2002, <laughs> at the Forge, <laughs> they were like, hey, you got to make the thing. Like, you you (laughs) know, like without a thing, we can't really talk about, you know, the object determines the what we we talk about it. And there's something really interesting to me about that, that from its initial point, it was about there needs to be an object. There needs to be a thing that we can critique and think through because nothing exists in a vacuum. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, and what I will say is in a very 2000 mid 2000s mode, the way they talked about that requirement was deeply abrasive, right? Right. The quote here on forty, uh, which um, I don't. Who is this actually? This is this is from Ron talking to Finnish academic Marcus Montola. Um, uh, Ron wanted to – Ron and Clinton, the other kind of head moderator and I think co-founder of the form, Mm -hmm. um, uh, said that they – Ron said that they wanted to alter the form significantly to reflect, quote, real activity and reflection rather than self-reinforcing, ego-based marking off of intellectual territory. Putting actual play at the top made a definite positive difference on the site usage, just what we were looking for. Uh, And if if anything reflects what the Forge – what The Forge is, I think, even in a a very even-handed um, uh, account, it is someone saying something totally right, like, hey, putting actual play at the top made a definite positive difference in, in sight usage. That's what we were looking for, uh, coupled with someone saying that this is what real activity and reflection look like. Anything else is bullshit. Anything else is fake. Anything else is not real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I I really wish this book came with the theoretical toolbox necessary to start to unpack what real means throughout, uh, many of its interlocutors end up saying something about what real work looks like. And they're not, they're talking about intellectual production, right? They're talking about creative labor. Um, and I know in my I know in my heart what this means. because I made that post the other day, right? That's like, mm-hmm. hey, you got to sit down and make something. If you want to make something, you have to make the thing. Uh, but what I would never do is presume to say that that like the posts on RPG Theory were not real activity. Um, in fact, I don't know how you begin to to make that that divide unless. And this is something else I, I think this book maybe could have gone into a little bit deeper, um, unless what you, you're talking about is creating a product, which is mm-hmm. what the other half of the forge ends up being, is how does it support indep- independent uh, designers into becoming independent self-published designers, um, or, or maybe not even self-published, but finding relationships with publishers, etc. Uh, and I think that that is – Another important turn here that does not get the attention it maybe deserves, that if I had to define what real activity was, it's the difference – according to the Forge's kind of ethos, it's that – it's not just talking about a thing. It's going out and doing it and then doing it until you have a, a PDF or a printed copy of a book that you can sell at a convention. Um, mm-hmm. that, the, the more you can hold a thing, the more real it is in, in, in this way. The more you can sell a thing, the more real it is. Um, and I think that that is uh, – maybe that's, maybe that's too strong of, a, of, of mm-hmm. an accusation. But it, the vibe is certainly there throughout this book.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, uh, the soft version of that, right, is the more that you can produce an artifact yes. that has an impact on the world because other people can then take it and, and read no, it and engage. See, it. I don't it, agree right? with
2: that. I don't uh, think you that don't that's, think so. I, because
0: the theory hasn't has this is my problem with this, this,
2: this kind of scheme is that, like, of course, the conversations having in the, happening in the theory section also have an influence on the world. And in some cases, right. we know this. Theory posts can have a bigger influence on the world than something someone made someone on the forge made mm-hmm. a game and brought it to Gen Con to sell at the forge booth and they sold seven copies and no one spoken to them since. Someone else made a post on this form that went gangbusters and influenced <laughs> things in a huge way, okay. and that post had more influence. And This is the thing that's like, if you're going to talk about influence, it falls apart. Um, right. It's one of the reasons why I don't think you can talk about real production in this way. You can talk about the effect of particular types of production. You can talk about the ways in which uh, – uh, I mean, one of the big questions in this book that I think begins to happen here is – is this a technologically deterministic space? Did this happen because the if the Forge didn't happen, would the internet have created it, you know, would have invented Mm -hmm. it? Because what really is happening here is a certain sort of, quote-unquote, democratization of publishing technologies, both digital and and physical, right? Um, uh, And I think that those are conversations you can have. But the second you're talking about, like, raw influence, at that point, I don't know that you can... I mean, you'd have to do a much bigger quantitative study to to, for me to be convinced that theory posts and independent tabletop games have a a major difference in their potential influence quotient or whatever you know
0: (laughs) right yeah and i guess i'm thinking too about like what's the mental model of what they think they're doing versus what actually happened right because i'm thinking here too about like Vincent Baker talking about taking dogs in the vineyard to Gen Con and like what happened by having the physical object there. But you're exactly right. Like totally raw numbers of who cares about the thing and and who continues to talk about these things. Right. Yeah. The vast majority, you know, I'm I'm not as plugged in as many other people are to the TTRPG space, but like. You know, uh Danny from Ages of Murder Dads, Range Touch co-founder, is very plugged into all of this stuff. And mm-hmm. I recognize names through this, through through him, but not every name, but there are lots of theory things that I did not know that I knew that originated in the Forge. Right. Um, and you know, and got processed through uh uh what, Google Plus or no Google Wave. Google Plus. Google Plus is Google where Plus. I was. Like, this
2: is yeah, Google okay. Plus was huge for the tabletop right uh community. Um, uh, I I, mean, I think dogs and uh, Vincent Baker's work is a great example of this. Where I think Dogs in the Vineyard uh, is it, there, there's two different versions. And I think Dogs in the Vineyard is probably not played by as many people as its ideas then would go on to touch. Right. Does Vincent only get to those ideas because of making Dogs in the Vineyard? Probably, and and because of that, I think it's good to make things. Um, but people mostly, I think, have engaged with some of its ideas in. The the uh, aftershock of them as they spread through blog posts and uh, through conversation and through you know uh, other designers picking up those ideas. Right. Alternatively, to show that I don't think it's it's always the same. It's not it's not always that. I think the our apocalypse world and the powered by the apocalypse uh, stuff that follows after it ends up being super influential as a book in a way that that. Dun- or that I keep saying Dungeon World, which is not – it's because I'm talking to Sage LaTora, who's one of the creators of Dungeon World uh, uh, recently, and some, he's in my head. Um, in contrast to that, I think that, that Apocalypse World uh, is a game that a lot of designers directly played uh, and that had influence on them. So I think it can go either way, but I just don't think influence or reach or anything like that makes a certain type of – creation, especially inside of this subset of, of what we're talking about, which is like we're talking about putting words on a page. In both of right. these cases, we're talking about putting words on a page. Neither of these things are moving pig iron, you know, or building skyscrapers. Like, I, if you want to have that conversation, then we can have that conversation. Um, uh, but both it's called these the things,
0: Forge, Austin. Are you yeah, telling sure me? Is. God. <laughs> <laughs> it Hephaestus is. is. Forge. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, Lord. <laughs> I will say the other half of this thing, or my favorite thing in this, in this chapter, is that – and maybe this is my favorite thing in the book, because I think, again, it's very telling about the entire relationship with the Forge um, – is that, again, I think an even-handed rendition of what the Forge was, as, as just looking at White's work, is a place where people would engage with ideas with a genuine interest – even if maybe they said bad things about them sometimes or even if they were rude. But what it became to live as in a lot of people's minds was this, like place where the wisdom, uh, the angry wisdom lived. And mm-hmm. like, everyone was, it wasn't just insular, but it was it, it was dogmatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my favorite thing maybe in this book is on page 44 where, quote, nonetheless, one of the persistent tensions at the forge was a desire on the part of newcomers at the site for a clear and forthright statement of some sort of forge doctrine or forge theory versus the reluctance of many old forge hands, referred to variously as forges, forgites, <laughs> forgistas, or forged <laughs> Once the last apparently a misogynistic portmanteau taken from a bit of vulgar British slang reclaimed by the forge members after it had been applied disparagingly to them in some online setting to give them such a statement. And very funny to, to imagine people going to the forge and shaking shaking you know people by the collar and saying, "Tell me what you think. Tell me how you think I'm supposed to make games."
0: <laughs> well, and anyone who made a post around that, Immediately treated like uh, just a huge jerk (laughs) like Uh how dare you come here?
1: And do it right yeah i think uh, i think that that's one of the most interesting things about this and i'll probably talk about it more in chapter five uh because that's the one about posting uh is just how much uh like the thing that i would have liked to see more of um in this book is digging into how the forge's reputation is a consequence of these moderation decisions
2: Mm.
1: right that uh uh, you know, if, if you have a community where everyone like, uh, I guess one way to put this, um, the Forge is a, a like classic old forum internet community, it seems to me in the sense that you are supposed to lurk, read and internalize rules, right? You, you kind of like learn by observation, what are the types of things I'm supposed to post? Uh, what gets reactions? How do I how do I uh, interact with people here? Um, and uh, the Forge has, has like this, this uh, mandate that they are going to pursue in whatever particular form. And at the same time, they're not going to lay out, here is what you need to do to participate in this community. It's you know, you're like, here is what our big theory is of, of game design that you can just like, I don't know, plug into and, and uh, go hog wild with. No, you have to be here and you have to learn how we talk to each other. Uh, and th- this is true for, I think, many internet communities at this time. But I think like every internet community has some other... Other internet community that thinks that that community is elitist or aloof or something like that, um, precisely because there's some kind of like uh, discrepancy in terms of like basically how you're supposed to discipline yourself in order to participate in the discourse.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I, I it is interesting to me that so much of that exactly what you just said gets kicked off into that other chapter into mm-hmm. chapter five I think is what what you just said. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but we get one piece of it in this chapter, which is the, like, welcome to the Forge subsection that starts on page 50 and kind of goes through the gender and uh, racial dynamics of the Forge. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that ends up being, uh, like, the, the section, the subsection of that subsection <laughs> called uh, Women at the Forge uh, is uh you know uh white does a couple interviews with people who were around and then looks at some threads that are about it and basically like there are women who are showing up uh to 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 the forum and being like hey what gives like why are you treating me this way um which is like a very fair question to ask and so white really uh walks through that and ultimately comes to the conclusion that like. Uh, the forge is dominated by men it's dominated by like uh discursive styles that are hostile that are associated with those men and then there's this exclusionary uh mechanism that occurs that way and then there's an additional uh subsection that's called uh and and then you know like white gives us all these examples of like women being explicitly tone policed Mm -hmm. uh like you know why don't you think about engaging in a different way but then there's this subsection called people of color at the forge um and so there's this conversation with um, uh, Julia Bond Ellingbo um, and the creator of Steal Away Jordan, uh, which is a, a game about. I, I wasn't familiar with this game beforehand, but it's a game, a tabletop game that is about enslavement. Um, and it, it seems like escape. I don't know. Have either of y'all played or read through not. this game? No. Okay, yeah, I was not aware of this beforehand, so it seems seems quite interesting. But she's talking here about. Um, going to the forge and um you know the the response there's this long set of quotations from uh, an interview that uh Ellenbeau does with alex roberts um who's like very well known i think in this space now um but then like the the output of this and the reason i'm bringing this up is it's quite weird to be kind of stuck in the middle of this book it's only three pages but it kind of comes out of saying uh, you know this long set of quotations from ellen bow where they're like, hey, uh, I I felt like I was discriminated against at the Forge, right? I was basically told that I didn't know what I was talking about. And there was a question of my authority to be able to write about uh, in- enslavement, right? Um, and in the book here, she's identified as an African-American Muslim woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are all these kind of questions going on about, like, the legitimacy of making the thing. And then White goes into the thread and to be like, yeah, I don't think that happened. <sighs> right uh-huh. like i you know i'm i'd not uh i don't think in any way am i misinterpreting here because you know basically he says well i saw x happen and i saw y happen but it's not the way that this person said it and i think it's very odd and i'm really just focusing on this because i think it is so odd i don't know what the benefit here in the book is of going to relitigate a thread to say that this creator was wrong about the way that she felt about the way she was treated at the forge and the reason i say that is that is that it kind of moves into another point that i've made before but which which is important which is that the forge was not just the threads that are on the forge yes right mm-hmm. it's it's email conversations afterward it's people talking to each other about how other people talk on the forge it's aim you know aim it's msn messenger mm-hmm. uh it's other forums it's right the gen, that,
2: it's the gen con booth and the dinners that happen afterwards and the hangouts that happen around that convention space mm-hmm.
0: right and so this maneuver that happens here of Looking at this this uh, designer's experience and saying, I can't find it in the threads, which is fine. Maybe you can't find it in the threads. That, I think, shows a methodological weakness to only looking at the threads or only thinking that the emanation, that the artifact itself is
1: the threads.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, because other stuff's going on. It's a social system. As if all these people aren't also hollering at each other on IRC somewhere. (laughs) Right. Right. That all
0: these other pieces. So I think, so I'm not like bringing this out to point out like, hey, what's going on here? This is really weird. Although I think it is. This is such a key moment for me of, if you can, of the costs and benefits of the exact form of analysis the book does. And it's instructive to me, right? Like. If you can only think the thread, then you can only get so far with understanding what someone's racialized experience is in relationship to the thread. Mm -hmm. Because it's not exhausted by what the words are in the thread. Totally.
2: I think that that is – it comes back to the thing that you just said before, which is like, okay, what does benefit – how does this book benefit by this? And it's very hard for me, also as a black American, not to feel like this is like – white I don't want to say relitigating but but doing some like cover your ass maneuver where you're like now some people have said uh-huh. that the form could be racist or exclusionary but here's a prime example where everything went fine um, and I please take people at their word and like you don't even need to. you can just look at the demographics which white puts forward it's a very it's a it's a very white form. Um, uh, it's not a very racially or gender inclusive space. Uh, uh, and as much as, uh, you know, I think he uses this book to allow other people to make arguments for and against why that is, or whether that was a particular element of the forge or quote unquote, just nerd culture or geek culture at large. And I don't know that this book is benefited. This book has to engage with these things, but I don't know that it's benefited by, the way white works through the issues in this, in this chapter.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Um, and, and uh, Ellen Ellenbow shows up to again, a couple times in like uh, page 70, 71, 72 as mm-hmm. someone who's also speaking again to like racial assumptions that are in games. So, you know, she's not dropped out of the book entirely after that point, but it, it really stuck out to me of exactly the way you said, right. Of, you know, this is indicative to part of, of the method. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there's and- also
2: something happening in this in the section that I only just put together again while going back and looking at this, which is, Ellingbo says in this this interview with Alex Roberts, like when I first started writing games, that's where I had this contact with a sort of toxic maleness on occasion. I don't think I got it all that bad, but there were there were moments, and even around things like race and da 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 da, and on and on. Like in this quote. There is not even a particular accusation made against the Forge. So why are you using it as a – why respond to it here on behalf of the Forge to say, you know, but this is not necessarily I, – I don't know. I feel like there is a um, – I feel like there is a rush to wave the flag that, that – you know whatever whatever negatives she felt. I mean, I guess in this quote, she does go on to say that the that the forge was a place where she felt like her qualifications were being challenged. Right. Um, but like, I don't know. I, it feels like a waste of of, of um, it feels like a waste of my good faith reading it. I remember being being hitting the section and being very confused as to why this person who who again in 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 the references eventually. Um, White ends up talking about one of his own games, uh, uh, which is about a, a uh, Native American, uh, is an Inuit. Um,
0: mm, yeah, I don't I
2: remember mean, it's a, it's co- how I he frames it. Even well, I don't
0: think that they're a real group. Okay,
2: well, I would say that like there is a there is a real there are other conversations worth hap- worth having about race. If you're going to open this door, then this one black woman this one black muslim woman made a game she she said that she felt like her authority was taken under uh was dismissed but don't worry it actually wasn't you know
0: mhm yeah so uh yeah white made a made a the thing you are referring to yeah, is, sorry, go ahead. white made a thing called Gana Kagok, uh right. mythopoetic role playing there's about a kind of um yeah like uh you know um, gosh black polar rim uh group Uh, Mm -hmm. who are responding to the first time that the sun comes up. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot, but, but yeah, the website says the need to people. And, and I've looked this up and I don't, I'm not quite sure that, if if that is a real ethnic group somewhere, I I can't identify it immediately. So, but yeah, you know, it has the, the this very much that like...
2: I'm that I'm looking for here is forty six uh, in chapter. I don't know what chapter I'm on here. Five. This is the fifth chapter again. Buried. Eventually, Christian convinced me that the Inuit and other Native American motifs in Ganakagak, uh were cultural appropriation. I would write it differently today, and it's like that doesn't live in this text though. You know, I'm surprised that there isn't a section or maybe there ought to have been a section about the ways in which the Forge did or did not talk about your ability to write a game from indigenous perspectives or using indigenous stories as flavor uh, uh, at the time. And that, that work is not here, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, that's something we were talking about at the beginning, too, right? Like, the part of this book is autoethnography and, and maybe one way of – getting into the book right it's talking about one's own racial identity and how the forge created a um this is just repeating what you said but created a community in which that did not immediately feel wrong or did right. that did not feel right. a little bit weird to begin doing that right as someone who um you know might not be part of that ethnic community so um then the forge ends you know <laughs> <laughs> the end <laughs> the end uh, uh, you know, we get this kind of thing here at the end, and then we get uh, Kenneth Burke. <laughs> 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 Just in case you needed a little bit of Kenneth Burke, and you're like a com scholar, loves Ken-. you know if if uh, if you didn't know at the beginning this is a book written by a com scholar, then Kenneth Burke showing up is definitely how you would find that out because um, they they love it in the discipline. I feel like uh, Kenneth
2: Burke is someone who I've seen. I, it's like I haven't heard that name since my first year English course. You know,
0: <laughs> if, if you're interested in this, this is kind of like an application case of uh, Burke to forum posts, um, and uh, as uh, as Michael put it in his notes, explaining Kenneth Burke to, on for how to
1: read forum posts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, it's, it's, it's it's a good thing to keep in mind, right? When yeah, people sure. post, when people post, they got uh, perspectives on the world that sometimes make them say things that seem really strange. And rather than just being like, wow, look at this wacky person who makes no sense. Sometimes you can reverse engineer what a person says to figure out what they think about the world. Yes, in the mm-hmm. rhetorical mode that they're engaging with, right, or
0: irony, things like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm being a little bit jokey because the, the Kenneth Burke showing up is just a, it's like reading a Batman comic and being like, Jim Gordon's going to show up somewhere here. <laughs> I know we're going to see Jim Gordon. Where is Where is that little mustache at? Where is he? Um, and uh, Kenneth Burke just you know kind of coming out of nowhere was I was like, yep, I knew it. I knew he was going to be here. Um, I,
2: I I kind of wish the methodology had been more like relied upon, uh-huh. actually, in some ways here, because I think that a thing I would have loved this book to have is a theoretical frame or yeah. or lens. And uh, if it's Burke, it's Burke, you know, mm-hmm. I, I would have been happy with that, because then I think we would have moved from um, this, this, uh, we would have moved into analysis, and I would have liked to
1: have seen more analysis. Not to, uh, like, uh, dangle the carrot of chapter five too much more. <laughs> but like, <laughs> I would have loved this to come back during the discussion of Edwards's like um uh the 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 big controversial blow up that uh is discussed in chapter 5 and we'll get there is about some comments he makes about players having quote brain damage. And Burke doesn't come back to like help us elucidate that uh, which I think would have been helpful because the first time that uh, incident comes up which is actually i think in the first chapter uh white asserts that it might have been uh, a socratic comment on edwards's part but that also doesn't get elaborated uh, but again that's it's chapter 5 we'll, we'll talk there but yes <laughs> chapter 3 is the
0: rise and fall of the forge booth and uh alongside chapter 5 that like you like we've talked about a million times so far this was probably my favorite chapter mhm hmm. Um, you know, th- this is my favorite chapter until I got to chapter five, I guess I should say, because it literally is just a kind of, it feels like very, uh, Petersonian, right? Like, Hey, this is what occurred. Here's a bunch of interviews that I did in order to figure out what the shape was and what the intent and, and goals behind it were. Uh, and here's how it actually worked. And I thought this was such a good bit of explanatory, both reportage and analysis. For a phenomenon that I kind of knew about, but did not realize how important it was. Um, And, you know, uh, you know, as you were saying earlier, Austin, right, like when we talk about influence, right, you know, the number of people who read Uh a forum post is like orders of magnitude higher than like the people who went to this booth. Uh, and purchased one of, you know, you know, someone's 80 copies of something they made and they never made any more again. Right. Like we, we have to, to do that. But there is something about the kind of physical presence. There's something about co-presence going on here as a community strengthening activity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I really wish. Yeah, don't yeah, go don't know ahead.
2: if it's true that more people in general engage with the forms than went to the forge booth over a decade. Because you don't think so. I, Gen Con's huge. Yeah. And I, if Gen, you count yeah. – the, the, I mean the thing that this book – this chapter ends up saying is by the end of it, there are these kind of like offshoots, these children of the Forge right. who end right. up having – it goes from being – we should just say the Forge booth is a, uh, is a, a booth that Ron Edwards, uh, who is the founder of the Forge and the designer of Sorcerer, a very influential indie game from this era – uh, gets a gets a booth at Gen con uh, mm-hmm. Gen con is the country's currently largest tabletop role-playing game convention it's grown you know exponentially over the years it began very 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 it began not really as a convention but as a small gathering of people uh, who knew Gary and Gygax, mm-hmm. and it now takes up the in the huge Indianapolis uh, convention hall mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, at the time, there was this one booth, the Forge booth, where Ron uh, Edwards. Uh, I I really wish this book called him Edwards and not uh-huh, Ron uh-huh. all the way through. It's it's very strange to me when last names and first names are used, and I it's it's not like everybody gets their first name used. To be clear, mm-hmm. um, anyway, uh, Edwards um, uh, gets this booth, pays for this booth, and then invites people from the Forge to come. Uh, and and hang out and play games, demo games, and then eventually sell games. Um, there's an entire kind of history of what the the kind of practice was that Ron tried to, hmm, I did it, that Edwards tried to pursue uh, mm-hmm. in order to make sure that the games on offer were fresh, that there weren't a sense of uh, an in crowd being created. Um, it wasn't the same, you know, dozen, two dozen people coming with, with whatever their latest thing was. It wasn't a, it wasn't a publisher, right? It was a form that had people making games. And if you had, I think the rule ended up being you couldn't come, if you, if you, once you were there two years, that was it. You couldn't, you couldn't sell games there anymore. Uh, yes. After a two year period. Yep. Um, uh. And, and like, you know, it walks through all of that. And then the end of that is, hey, partially because of that rule and partially because of the growing success of independent publishing in the space. Other designers who formerly would have sold their stuff at the Forge booth would end up creating their own uh, booths, including other booths that would sell games not only from one publisher but from other friends and and other you know related related groups, including the Indie Press Revolution uh, uh, you know uh, table. Uh, mm-hmm. So many many uh, uh, many children the Forge booth had, uh, and so I think that you're I think that if I had to guess how many people go to Gen Con every year and like would go by that, that booth and be exposed to something from the forge, I bet that numbers I bet that number's really high. Mm-hmm. Um uh what I was saying before was you could go to the forage booth for two years and and not move any product and not right. touch, not do the big influence and maybe a post of yours could do better than that we of course there is probably an example of that um uh, that that's the sort of thing that happens on the internet just as course um but uh, I I do think that you're right that the physicality of this um and the opportunity to, Bump into people who would not traditionally cross paths with these games is huge, right? Um, yeah that that's the thing about this is that you're having the sort of like going to a convention like this is is you're a flaneur, right? you are yes. you are you are walking down <laughs> the aisles. Oh, what might I bump in today? Oh, look, this this fine gentleman has decided to make a game about being a, a little goblin man serving an evil master. Yeah, I'll, I'll play that for 30 minutes. <laughs> and suddenly your mind has expanded 30 fold. That's that's at least as how, right. I, how I understand it uh, happening,
1: you know? Yeah, this chapter oh. for me was uh, a realization. So I, I'm from Indiana and uh, Gen Con moves to Indianapolis in 2003, which is about the time I start playing D&D. Mm. Um, so this all kind of all like my, my history and sort of relationship with tabletop games ends up being kind of not, not fraud is not the right word, but like I did not, I could have fallen more in love with tabletop than I did because, uh, the group that I played with, we, we did not have similar creative agendas. Right. (laughs) Um, is, is the fundamental thing. And I knew about Gen Con because, uh, you know, as, as always seems to be the case in these types of, like, small-town little groups of, like, you know, scumbag kids playing D&D, uh, somewhat, like, w- three of the kids, their dad was a huge D&D guy and had all of the AD&D manuals and stuff. So he was like, ah, oh, Gen Con's in Indianapolis. Like, we're gonna go. Um, but I never went to Gen Con uh, because I assumed that all uh-huh. tabletop game... Uh, gameplay was essentially like variations on D&D because like I, I knew about GURPS and things like that it all <laughs> all seemed sort of like everything was just like it was it was a variation on what D&D was doing and while I was reading this chapter I was like if I had like accepted that <laughs> damn invitation to go to Gen Con in like 2004 I could have wandered by the forge booth and become an entirely different guy <laughs>
2: yeah, you're just a different guy you're just a hundred percent a different type of guy at that point yes I mean you're still Michael. That's yeah. the, the important thing here is. I think you would still extremely be Michael because there is a lot of space for Michael in this space.
0: <laughs> the parameters of Michael are very big. But <laughs> yeah. the, the specific Michael uh, you know is a is a plot is a point you plot I, on the I parameter. Mean,
2: this is what happened this is what happened to me, right? It's like I got exposed to uh, a game that comes up in this book with great power, which I mentioned before, uh, is a kind of cape superhero uh, uh, game um, uh, that absolutely blew my mind. And that was from a friend who had gone to a convention, uh, my friend Art Martinez teppel who's on Friends at the Table with me, came back and was like, we have to play this. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Uh, that was a game that uh, I don't I don't believe you use dice at all. It's a card based game. Uh, and it was really interested in mapping uh the, the two things that i think with great power did really well that like opened my mind was that your superhero had like traits and those traits could be laser beam eyes but it could also be like a loving relationship and like <laughs> a well paying job that you, that fulfills you and um those things get more powerful in your life or less powerful and you have to adjust the ratio so if you're like really invested in your relationship, you got to take something away from your job, or your laser beam eyes, or some other, or your invul- vulnerability, um, because it's trying to map that particular style of kind of Silver Age superhero story, uh, in which uh, you you have uh, uh, these competing uh, priorities, and that's the sort of melodramatic mode that that those stories were working in, or at least many of them were, um, and uh, that ended up being like. Opening my mind because in my, at that point I'd only played games where if you were a superhero, what happened is you had seven different types of abilities with various point values, and my laser beam eyes were a seven, but my invulnerability was only a three, and that that soaked damage at such a rate, and it was the it was the D and D style of um of i what what we might call either gamist or simulationist depending on how we interpret those terms Mm -hmm. um and and seeing a game that was instead interested in if it was simulating anything and we can get into this stuff as we get into the theory chapter it was simulating sort of genre conventions it was it was trying to Mm -hmm. to impress upon us the impress upon the player the the logics of superhero comics or a certain subset of superhero comics and it just completely changed who i was as a person um and so like michael that could have been you you Mm -hmm. could have walked down the 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 aisle and found the the one game that would have like completely shifted you into being an arp an indie rpg guy Mm -hmm. Uh, but i think you turned out okay i think we got a good michael anyway Thank you.
0: I, I try to I try to work with what I got. <laughs> well, we got a lot of different Michaels. So <laughs> uh, that one, one is uh, beyond the veil, and it's uh, huge into TTRPGs, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> it's move inventing, Michael. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of, of different things here, and this is really interesting to me because, right, I'm, I'm working on this kind of big magic project. Mm. Um, in the background of a lot of other stuff, magic
2: the gathering. Not you're not casting a <laughs> spell,
0: right? Well, no, no. Well, I'm doing a lot of close up stuff. You know, I got, I got a lot shot. of mirrors and <laughs> blankets that I've been working with.
1: I've been working through translations of De Occulta Philosophia with you. Yeah,
0: it's it's a big thing. I don't know Latin. I need help. <laughs> uh, but but apparently the stuff or the stuff I thought was really interesting here too is the the walking through Peter Atkinson, who used to be the CEO of Wizards of the Coast and who showed up at the beginning of the John Peterson book from last time, also shows up here as someone who's buying Gen GenCon um, from maybe
1: Hasbro? It's unclear who they actually purchased it from, but... Um, um, no, it's, uh...
2: It, TSR, right? Yes. Or who it's well, sorry. So, it's so, after he uh, sells
1: magic to Hasbro. Oh,
2: okay, I see. Yeah, right. Peter and so, Atkinson, and then,
1: by then the former CEO of Wizards of the Coast, having left the company shortly after selling it to Hasbro. Right,
0: but, but oh, then okay. it says, uh... Another place here too, where he says where he, they purchased it from its corporate owners, but that's unclear if that's another corporation or if it's from Hasbro itself is is my question. Uh, oh, okay, and I got to figure that out. Um, anyway, but there's a bunch of like information here that that is really interesting. I'm sure that we can kind of like dot through it, but like get, uh, the Forge is partially responsible for the invention of games on demand. Yeah. By mm-hmm. Cat Miller, which is wild mm-hmm. to me. The idea of it, games on demand, which is the idea that you might go to a convention and there are these tables set up and you go to like a central station and you kind of rent out an RPG uh, or you like pay a little deposit or you leave some stuff there and you get the RPG and then someone might run you through it or you and your friends can just play it. Uh, you know, and this exists at basically every convention that is bigger than 15 people at this point. Um, <laughs> it emerges out of Gen Con and, and is invented by this person named Cat Miller. That blew my mind. I was like, holy shit, the idea like of course that was invented, but right. the idea that it was invented really, you know, it came out of nowhere for me. Uh, and like stuff like that is where I'm like, that's real. That's capital y- y- R. That
2: shifts the social. That shifts sociality at conventions in such a big way.
0: You know, mm-hmm. yeah. People at this point, there are people who only go to conventions to do games on demand. Yep. Or to run them, right? Yep. Just to be a facilitator for these things. That is an entire unique mode of engagement with fan and communities. It is probably worth setting up what the
2: context is there, which is that prior to this, the way that this generally worked is that. And this is true, at least in my experience of, of going to tabletop conventions, uh, you know, in this era before games on demand was kind of a big thing. Mm-hmm. You would have to submit what game you wanted to run months in advance with a little abstract, a little summary of what it was, what system, what type of players you were looking for, what level their character should be if they're bringing their characters. Or you should say that, you know, you're going to have gens there for them to play. You have a little bit of a – you have like – calling it a booth is wrong. You have a often a small like diner, like tall table uh, or or a small round table to play on depending on, on what the situation is. And you have it for a certain amount of time. You have it for two hours or something like that. Uh, And then people sign up, you get your signups or they show up with a ticket and they go, "Okay, like I'm here to play the session that you that you scheduled four months ago, you know, Uh, and the idea that you could just grab a game and be like, oh, let's just go grab a space and then play this thing. Let's go try this thing out. Just did not exist outside of the informal version of it, which was like, let's go back to your hotel room or let's go find – let's go to the food court and see if we can scam a table and then, like, someone's going to glare at us because we're playing a tabletop RPG instead of letting them sit down to eat their $13 hamburger, you know? Right. Um, And so, like, this this really changes – what this experience is like for people i don't think pax works without games on demand and pax right. is probably the predominant uh convention at this point right or it works but it does not it does not bring in a certain type of player and it doesn't produce the i don't think the way in which people talked about pax when pax was at the kind of apex of its cultural power um uh, where it got talked about as a place you went not just to see products but to play games with other gamers and you get to connect to other people and there's this communal aspect and you're exploring the space and you're trying new things none of that happens i think without games on demand
0: oh yeah i mean the the last time i was at a pax (laughs) uh uh, you know i there were people who would be like texting me or like sending me uh, twitter messages at like 11 p.m to be like we're playing blah blah do you want to come play (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i was like no (laughs) but 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 it's an enculturation right like i was just not aware i think at that point where it was like oh like, this is the whole reason you're here. You're not here to, like, do any... And, like, I was there kind of for worky stuff, right? Like, I'd been doing stuff all day long. Um, and I was like, no, I don't... I, I would like to, like, chill out. And you are here to, like, play games until 3 a.m. And once <sighs> they kick you out of the venue, you are going to be somewhere else playing games uh, until tomorrow. And that's, the, that's, like, the whole reason for being there. And, yeah, uh, you know, I think you're right. I think Games on Demand is the engine for so much of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um there's this a section, bunch of other Oh, go ahead. This go ahead. section
2: has my favorite thing where like my entire note on this page is just RPG's rule. Um uh <laughs> there is a there is a, a a bit early on here. I think it's on page 93 and the 94 where Jake Norwood uh who uh, at the time was new to the Forge and the Forge community uh talks about what his experience was trying to make a game. I'm going to let this motorcycle fly by. All right. Uh talks about what his experience was like trying to make a game uh, and uh, the bad advice he got from the game manufacturers association gamma uh, which tells <laughs> him uh, he goes to them and says so if I have a book and it's hardcover and it's got a decent cover I could sell like 5,000 copies maybe and they're like yeah sure no problem and like, "Well, that's not useful advice they're just lying to you about how many copies you're gonna sell of your book uh, but then he, what he gets into is this experience of playing um, uh, this game that he'd made, Riddle of Steel. Um. A quote, Ron invited me and Ben to run a game of Riddle of Steel for him, Ralph Mazza, Mike Holmes, I think Jared Sorensen maybe. We played this game and it was my first time playing the game with a whole bunch of avowed narrativists. Uh, it was this fantastic three to four hour session, but at the end of it, everybody died. It was a bloodbath. They were in a town and the gates, the floodgates were open to the dam and it got flooded and there was fire and death up on top of these hills and Ralph Mazza's character, whose destiny, again, a spiritual attribute, whose destiny it was to die, ended up getting Uh, getting his neck entangled in this flag and he and he falls off this roof it was just this huge it was like a Scorsese film Ben and I walked away just whoosh minds blown because these were guys who caught the vision of what we were trying to do Uh, and I just it's just like I do love that there is space in this book for people being like yo I played this session where this wild stuff happened and it's etched in into their minds right this is not an interview this is a phone interview for this book not a phone mm-hmm. interview in 2002. A year after this happened, this is like what RPGs do when they're when they're run when they're when they're really good. When people have a good time at the table, is that like they become the most important story you've ever heard, uh, and you got to ha- you got to help make it. And I do appreciate that that finds its way into this book at the, you know it, kind of the heart of this book, the the bit where people are literally together playing games. Uh, uh, because I think that without that, you've missed something important about the phenomenological experience of what RPGs are.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you want to do the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and the, the that's kind of what's interesting. And maybe why I like this chapter so much is that it has to take you out of the the forum
1: threads. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: because the forum threads, even the actual play versions, these kind of af- after-action reports, essentially. That, as you said at the beginning of the episode, Austin, what we mean by actual play now is quite different, I think, than what they meant at the Forge. And it actually took me most of this book before I realized that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was like, oh, this is, these are more summaries than they are like a narrativized play which like play by post was also a thing in forums at the time you know so i assume maybe it was kind of like that that this other form of actual play of of recording or showing in real time the decisions that are being made in the game you know uh, watching someone play live but you
1: know uh, asynchronously essentially yeah but, and Peterson talked about how even uh, one of Guy Gax's big moves early on was doing like uh, gussied up transcripts of play as kind of advertisements for D&D and things like that right oh huge huge in like the
0: RPG space in a general sense so the first uh, uh, you know look I'm gonna be a magic nerd for a minute here uh, <laughs> and I'm gonna start saying spells in Latin here we go uh, but uh, the, the first ep- the first issue of the duelist which is Wizards of the Coast's official uh, Official magazine that like tells you about magic that comes out in uh, winter 94 so like a few months after uh, magic releases it has a narrativized magic uh, 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 match in it that is written in such a way where it's like, and this wizard does this and summons a bear, and this wizard shoots it with a lightning bolt, and then it has annotations in the side that are like, uh, this means a, a character's tapping one red mana, or a player's tapping one red mana, and they're shooting the bear, two choo creature, with a <laughs> lightning bolt, right? So so this kind of, you know, after-action narrativization, it, it's it, it's catching, right? Like, yeah. the in all of these games, even something that is much very far away from like rpgness you know that is vestigial to rpgness like magic even that is the way that they can conceive of selling it to people mm-hmm. think about the experience at the time the phenomenology of doing the thing uh, and so- they get good at it in this it was one of my favorite things
2: is digging into the techniques of running a booth like this and like the difference between different types of of you know uh sale strategies um, and then, what's a good Forge booth demo? Because it's not a four-hour session; it's a thirty-minute session. It's a twenty-minute session. Peel away everything about your game that's samey and get to the one thing that makes it unique. Do you have unique negotiation rules? Do a negotiation. Do you have really interesting, you know, uh, uh, you know, infiltration uh, techniques or something? Is there fun? Is it fun to be stealthy in your game? Do a little stealthy scene. And that, again, also is a big change from the way these game demos get made because these are people attending to. The design of their game in a different way, Um, Mm -hmm. which is one of those things that's like, it can be hard to say because it feels up its own ass. But like, whether or not I think the theory, which we'll get to in the next chapter is good. The fact is, is that they are working towards something or working in a certain mode that that encourages them to engage with questions like what's my game do good? What's the thing my game does? Um, Which is, is a particular type of engagement with, with production uh, that is inside of certain industrial forms of creation, not often encouraged uh, Mm -hmm. beyond marketability or something,
0: you know? Mm -hmm. And I think a, a, a real strength of this book is that, that everything you just said is very clear. Uh, like right, there, there right. would be a way of of writing this book that misses some of that, and I think that's why I like this chapter so much, is it really does capture, um, you know, the kind of granularity there that that might be hard to get. Um, a couple of things I want to say really quickly. I as I say forever as we continue to talk. Um, <laughs> but one, uh, the, a term that I associate the most with the forge, and I have no idea if it actually comes from the forge or not. It's just locked locked in my head somewhere. Is uh fantasy heartbreakers uh-huh. that finally gets that gets uh, mm-hmm. uh defined here uh in in a way that is like much more explicit and clear than i'd ever seen it actually defined as um right so so uh basically games that are carrying too much DD in them even though they're trying to break out of that mold um, so i thought that was cool that, that just kind of shows up randomly in this chapter there is the Vincent Baker um, story that that, uh, that you alluded to before, Austin. Um, One of the you... most
2: mid 2000s things I've ever read.
0: Oh. It really is like a tattooed guy to bar story. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Literally. <laughs> I don't know right? what I mean
0: by that, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs>
1: yeah. I do.
2: Michael, I feel like you've encountered this post a thousand times in your life. <laughs> well, it,
0: it's. <laughs>
1: This I mean, as I said kind of at the beginning, the fascinating thing about reading this is like I had no experience with the Forge, never posted on it, never read it, and at the same time everything here is so recognizable. <laughs> <laughs> like this guy who comes up it's like uh, he he won't uh buy cause the game is selling for what, like fifteen dollars or 15 something? Fifteen bucks, yeah. And uh, the guy is saying he, he will only pay uh three bucks. And or he'll pay
2: 12 it's a yeah. difference of three It's okay. wild yeah okay
1: yeah. yeah but eventually we get to the point where like this guy like they're haggling right he's haggling with him <laughs> and about how he's just going to like underpay him for this game and eventually gets to the point where it's like i'm not paying full price everything at this con is overpriced <laughs> that's beer money
2: that's yeah. beer money and vincent says i'll buy you a beer you you buy this 15 dollar game i'll go buy you a three dollar beer <laughs>
1: And then he like does it. He like goes to the bar with him and the guy uh-huh. like starts to have what seems to be some sort of remorse <laughs> about about this cuz he has cuz he starts telling his friends about how this guy's actually pretty cool cuz he, uh-huh. he And then he then he just leaves. <laughs> Benson Baker but just get- leaves.
2: It's all written in this prose that is like, Mm -hmm. this guy and I walk out of the convention center of the Hard Times Cafe. He says, you better fucking buy me a beer. And I said, I said I would. What? You think I'm a fuck off now? He stops strange (laughs) to show off his assholery. He thinks of us as peers, sick and fucked up wise. But it, it, it uh, it turns out that when it comes... To fucked upness, this guy's not even in my class. We bump into some friends of his, and he's like, "Check it out, this is Vincent. He wrote this brilliant game, and he's going to buy me a beer." <laughs> it's like it's so fucking funny. It's so of its era. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, this is where I was like, I have to yeah. go back and make sure no one can see how I wrote on Live Journal.
1: You, years how now. it ends is, you know, he says to me a couple pages later, uh, "You seem like a really cool guy. I can buy my own beer." Fucking sweet, I say, later. <laughs> Did he think I'd stay?
0: <laughs> it it has the form something that's beautiful oh. to me too is that it has the form of like you know, in that marine was Albert Einstein right. <laughs> 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 like it's like almost like this like chain email of like and then I fucking gave him what for and I went back to the booth it's so funny <laughs> like also, it's in internet triumphalism i don't know uh, there's a, a form to it that I, well, that I really love
2: there's another one of my another one of my favorite like internet things of this era shows up in this book like one page before this story uh, and it is, I want to say, Jared Sorensen talking about how the way that he sells things is by being kind of a cool guy. Oh, if you don't want to buy it, don't buy it. It's, it's, you <laughs> know, if you buy it, it's money in my pocket. But if not, it's no big deal. And he deploys the greatest mid-2000s forum phrase uh, ever, which is, uh, <clears throat> first, he gave info and showed enthusiasm for the games without unpleasant pre- uh, pressure. Second, he made it clear that while he would like my business, he didn't need it. It's just human nature. That Mm -hmm. when someone pushes something on us, our guard goes up and we get defensive. If I could have a nickel for every time someone (laughs) on a forum told me what human nature was, let me tell you, I would be a rich man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I especially like like this because it is another forum poster being like, here's what I love about this sales style. Yes,
2: yes. Oh, you're right. It wasn't Jared himself. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's like I fucking hate
0: selling things. It sucks. <laughs> it's awful. I just gave all my stuff away. Who cares? <laughs>
2: Right. It was the, not, he, Jared didn't see himself as having this great strategy. This is someone from the outside being like, now Jared has it down. And meanwhile, Jared <laughs> is just like, I, yeah, yeah, it's dur- not for me.
1: Direct quote from Jared Sorensen I just gave out 80 copies because I was like, I don't want to sell this. I don't think it's worth $10. I think people are insane for buying it. And they're not going to. So let me beat them to the punch by just giving it away. <laughs> oh.
0: It's just human nature.
1: It's just human nature. <laughs>
0: It's human nature when you meet a like a, a man who is is dejected at at a at a, at a uh, gin con booth that they're gonna really get you to buy their thing, but. <sighs>
2: Can I can I make two complaints about this chapter before we move on? Because I know you, we've could, been you here can for complain
0: a as much as you want, all or right. as little as you want, or as little. I, okay, the door the doors open both ways. Maybe
2: they're the same complaint because of the the complaint is really I wish you to theorize this at all. Right, um, right. Because that's just my complaint with the book, uh, and that's not the goal of the book, and that's a that's a me thing. That's not a that's not what White is doing. I think maybe someone else could take this text and theorize it, um, right. but I still wish it. the The second one. Uh, and th- I'll wrap back around why this is the same one, is there are times in this chapter and throughout the book where there is sort of the space given for a sort of self-hagiography. Um, I-, I think the first time this really happens is on 91, where Ron Edwards is talking about – and this is this – is, uh, Ron Edwards is talking about what people said about Ron Edwards. Um, <laughs> quote uh, – let me see here. Among the group, uh, blah, blah, blah. when I propose that in role playing, this is—I'm just going to read this whole quote because I think it's it's valuable to think about the way Ron Edwards talked about what Ra, who Ron Edwards was, and by extension, to some degree, what the Forge was. When I proposed that in in role playing as a hobby, we actually see profound differences in priority, astonishingly profound differences in priority that made all the diversity of sports just one thing, and that the presence of these different priorities among the group is an extraordinary source of incoherence and dysfunction the reaction to that i got 10 years ago was astonishing i was the devil the devil this is the worst thing anyone in role playing had ever heard i was divisive i hated the hobby obviously i was breaking up not only the groups not only groups but my group this person would say you my group are you trying to break it up how can you do this you're evil this was terrible i i don't think that there is a place for a quote like this in this book to to just live and go unchallenged. And I think with that also comes a lot of statements about how much money, uh, uh, Ron Edwards was losing at this table. Uh, Ron Edwards is allowed at one point to say, The Forge is not a company. It's not a publishing house. It's not a label. It's not a trade group. It's just a community that has a tremendous amount of synergy. That synergy drives a level of excitement and passion about gameplay uh, and, the game, and game design. People find appealings over and over uh, in the last few years in The Forge has become something of a brand. These things have to be engaged with. You have to explain to me why a, a company that it is a company, uh, you know, the four, or it is maybe not an incorporated company, but why an organization that that pays for a booth at a convention and then uses that booth to move move product, even if it's other people's product, even if they don't take a cut. Why is that not? A company? In what ways is that and isn't that like a publishing house? What are the ways in which there is a slip towards uh brand identity uh and uh commercialism, uh the same sort of which was potentially a threat uh back before the forge was created? Um why is that not being engaged with at all? Uh mm-hmm. and, and that's the thing that ends up frustrating me about this, at least at least a little bit. My point being not that I think that Ron Edwards was like making money on the forge table by the end, right? I, I think that he's pretty straightforward in what his goals are, and I suspect the numbers would support that he probably lost money at Gen Con year, year over year, um, even by the end of it when he's getting lots of people to chip in to pay for this stuff. Uh, but I do think that given the, group's or, 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 given the group's origin as being something that pushed against the ossification of the, the hobby – you have to engage with ways in which the Forge, becoming this big insular community, um, uh, that became a force inside of this space, uh, w- in this material mode, when it's at the at Gen Con, when it is this booth are there ways in which it's kind of falling into itself becoming that thing. I think that that you you know they do talk a little bit about again the thing of like the two-year rule, the ways that some of the insiders didn't like the two-year rule stuff like that, but I think that there's a responsibility to to not always just present the words of the person doing
1: the thing by themselves as history, you know? Mhm. Mhm. Well, like one of the fascinating facts about this is that the Forge booth was never actually the Forge booth. It was always right. the Adept Press booth, which was right. Edwards's company. So, yes, right. The company literally wasn't involved, yes. Right. But there, like, and I wish there had been something said about that. You know, what is it? Is there something uh, to think about in the fact that like, yes, in in, in, like specific terms of who's renting this booth, whose name is on the paperwork and so on, it is in fact the Adept Press booth, but it becomes Mm -hmm. known as, is called by everyone, the Forge booth. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: And I don't even—I don't even mean this in acute an accusatory way. I think the arguments of this book get stronger, or, or the mm-hmm. the history of this book gets stronger if you start to ask certain questions. For instance, we talked about games on demand—the thing that lets you go grab a game from a shelf or bring your own game and rent a little table space to play it. Basically, to and I say rent because it is renting. You bring a ticket. You buy tickets at an event like this. Or you're given tickets at the top, and you can buy additional ones in order to get access to mini events. Right? That might mean uh, to get access to one of these uh, pre-scheduled tabletop events. It might mean to get access to a big board game or one of these kind of big role-playing games where 40 people play or one of these like big LARP experiences, etc. Um, and the the uh, compromise that they made with Gen Con was that it was okay to do this. We would give you a little bit of space in order to uh, run these games on demand if you collect these generic tickets because that means people are still buying tickets. It's still producing revenue. And if you're not engaged with the ways in which this has to come back to commerce, the ways in which uh, no matter how outsider or how you know experimental or, or whatever your, your kind of social positioning is, you know, um, you're not... You're fundamentally going to get captured by Gen Con's desire and the hobby's desire and industry's desire for profit somewhere in here. Um, and I think that the book would just be stronger to directly engage with that. And I'm not asking for, like, m- you know, Braverman to be brought up. I'm not, like, looking for, like, Marxist analysis necessarily. But, like, I do think that there is val- value in, in laying that out in more than just factual terms and engaging with that stuff theoretically.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And and it gets kind of close to that, or I mean, not to the theorization of it, right? But there's another inroad to it with this Ashcan booth thing at Mm -hmm. the end, right? Which is like, what if you came and you brought What if you went to Gen Con and you monetized games that weren't finished? Yep. Mm -hmm. Like, like, what if you, what if you monetized early access yeah. in the tabletop space? Yeah, and, which is, I guess, maybe a thing that continues, you know, today. I know that some people on like itch and some kickstarters, oh, yeah. right, have, you know, part of the deal is you back now and you get the early version of the rules, and then later we'll have more involved, um, and that you know people uh, fund devel- development by s- selling, you know, the kind of in progress stuff. So this is like definitely still part of the thing, but. The very idea of of Gen Con kind of capturing profit out of, uh, you know basically just materials, you know, not completed games, but the materials from which games are going to be made. That's just an even, uh, you know, that's uh, an intensification of the thing that you just talked about, Austin.
2: I mean, it's funny you bring up itch because there's uh, one of my notes here on page 104 is just, this is an itch game. It really was all here before. Kat Miller uh, uh, reveals a game um, uh, that she made called War Stories, quote, in which players tell stories about their characters. The mechanics of the game, Kat said, are that you're telling your story, the people who are listening... Uh, and as you're you're telling it, uh, people can put down a please stop token. And that's when you know it's time to wrap it up. Or you can be oblivious and let them pile up because you're having a ball. And she goes on to explain that, like... She kind of made that joke as sat or made that game as a joke or satire, this sort of like almost like a poem game or a lyric game, a sort of just like, here is a I am doing art by making this game. Whether this mm-hmm. game gets played or not is secondary to the thing I'm doing, which is I had a funny idea, uh, or I had an idea that makes me think about things in fun ways and think about storytelling and and kind of this kind of oral mode of of people getting bored of someone who's a bad storyteller. And then what ends up happening is people go to Gen Con and play it because she sold them as a like almost as a bit at the forge table uh, and then it turns out people played it and loved it and she had never played it. Uh, she says, <laughs> but it's all, a, uh, basically that they ended up writing to her and saying, can we use your game and put it on our coasters at the bar we own <laughs> because we think it's great and and so now somewhere in Columbus, Ohio there is a bar or as of this publishing anyway, there is a bar that has her game printed on the coasters and like, I'm literally looking at a mug called Short Rest that is a mug based uh game that's sold on itch.io right now like this just <laughs> is an itch.io thing so shout out cool. to short rest it's kind of a cool game you can play while
0: you're filling your coffee anyway uh, I, I i do I, I do like that during this uh, little thing cat miller says i do i wasn't even sure it was playable <laughs> <laughs> right. like i didn't <laughs> even know one could do that <laughs> <laughs> which is which is good uh, yeah there, there's a lot of um of the it's interesting that in these interviews, some of that, like, uh, what would eventually be called, like, lyric games, those are showing uh-huh. up here, which I think is is really interesting. But unless we have anything else to say about Chapter 3, we can move to Chapter 4, Forge Theory from GNS to the Big Model. Mm-hmm. Hashtag Big Model. <laughs> Range starts fans know about hashtag Big Cable. They know. <laughs> that's, that's a deep cut from a long time ago. <laughs> uh where I believe uh, someone needed to uh get internet from one room to another <laughs> mm-hmm. uh when people write the uh the the reportive book about range touch, they can use that. yeah, but they can't because it's all gonna be on fucking discords, Cameron. <laughs> Oh, I, I uh, export Discord every day. Oh, <laughs> do
1: Wait, Waiting for do someone you? to come along in a couple of years and be like Cameron. But people
2: it. should. I mean, this is why I'm on this podcast, genuinely, right, is the first thought I had while reading this book was, I wish these communities existed still. Uh, I or not even these communities. I think I was messaging y'all about like the state of games criticism and how mm-hmm. games criticism, uh, the sort of middle state space, really this kind of I would say there are some middle state publishing things like First Person Scholar that absolutely still exists as they did a decade ago or when they first started mm-hmm. um but uh, uh which I think is less than a decade ago more like eight years ago or something but um uh the world of games criticism has changed in a great way you, someone Michael may have mentioned the blogosphere or Cameron you, you one of you did uh mm-hmm. this kind of like mid-2000s to late 2000s era um and then I think that that really moves into the kind of um s- small internet site you know sphere <laughs> where sites like paste mm-hmm. uh, we're publishing games or still are publishing great games criticism um but the discursive element has kind of left it uh at least as far as i can tell i don't think that we have the same sort of call and response um relationship with games criticism that existed um i think when you and i maybe were first getting into this stuff a decade ago
0: no um, not
2: at all no, not at right. all.
0: No, I mean, there, there's no way to have a dialogic conversation about no. games criticism that can happen in a public way anymore, which is, there are costs and benefits to right? 100%. Uh,
2: but but the thing that this yeah. book made me realize was, I thought that that partly was about if you'd asked me three weeks ago, what I felt about that, or I guess I was reading this book three weeks ago, but a month ago, uh, I would have said, uh, I think that there has been a, a cultural shift tied to larger changes in society away from a certain sort of critical engagement. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the ways in which the the platforms we engaged on, like Twitter and like blogs, have changed. Uh, things are increasingly centralized, which means that you get a different type of uh, interlocutor. Dah, 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 dah. And all of that, I think, is... is is true. But and also, I would have said, I think that there has been a people are tired of a certain sort of critical engagement uh, and roll their eyes at it. Reading this book made me realize I was like, oh no, the thing that happened is all those conversations are still happening. I've been in those conversations. They're on discords, they're on slacks, they're in, in right. private communication channels that will not be archived, that will not get the, this book will not be able to be written about whatever game design discords you're in. Literally a week after I said that to you, I got invited to a new tabletop game uh, design focused Slack. And it's like, okay, well, this is great. I love being here. I love being able to have these conversations. None of this, no one can lurk this without an invite. And that's such a difference in the way the internet is structured now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it's bad.
0: Anyway. Uh, yeah uh, there I, forums were good yeah, for form, some things good. right yeah uh, uh forum culture uh, and uh, but again uh forum culture was an emanation of the broader culture too right yeah. i mean that's something we get into in the homestuck show all the time right like you you can't look at the forum by itself because it's not uh you know just its own thing right but the uh the speed of forums right the the way it's that different. that one yeah it's different yeah. it's like sending emails i mean fundamentally it is sending emails yeah. you can all look at on one page yeah um and that was good sorry michael oh. yeah you have way more to say about oh this i was tonight. just i was
1: like this ties into what i was saying earlier about um you know the way you have to kind of like learn to post in a forum and what i'm going to say mm. uh, in the next chapter about you know the posting on the forge specifically but uh, the thing that really did come through for me was uh what you're just talking about like specifically the uh, the speed of posting on a forum where you had uh, sort of, you know, probably it varied by community, right? But uh, the Forge is one of these places, very like something awful in this way where like you had to have a post with content in it, some type mm, of okay. uh, uh, productive engagement with what is going on. And you had the space to write out something fairly lengthy if you wanted to. Um, and this, uh, you know, it results in people talking in bigger chunks than they do either on Twitter or in Discord, uh, because the, the the expectation in something like Discord, right, is that it's like rapid back and forth, whereas in forums, it's we are we are writing each other letters, right? hmm.
0: <laughs> mm hmm
1: yeah totally
0: yeah i think you know this is not i I mean someone is going to listen to this and be like listen to these old people listen to
2: them (laughs) love
0: in the early 2000s and i don't that that please i mean maybe some of that some of that is involved but really is there is a huge formal difference in the way that you engage with these platforms and like there is not a single part of any given forum culture that is terrible that has not also been replicated across every social media platform. So it's not as if we somehow got rid of that stuff, right? When mm-hmm. forums went away, but I do think we lost a you know a lengthiness, uh, a willingness to engage with stuff uh, well, for longer than one sentence,
1: the, which is important. Yeah, I was going to say the thing really to, the way the way to put this is that uh, the early internet, the the discursive communities that arose there. Uh, Were things that came about where people were in charge and putting in guardrails to cultivate certain types of conversation. And what we've seen in the move to big platforms is those platforms remove the guardrails because it makes Mm -hmm. people post more. Yep. Right.
2: Yep. Uh, That's the goal. Whereas, whereas, you know, to his credit, Ron Edwards from the jump said, this form will self destruct eventually. Mm-hmm. Eventually, this form will be done and it'll be an archive, but it's going to have an end date at some point. This project will, will end. Uh, and uh, that is, in some ways, the supreme guardrail, but also, as we'll get into, the moderation strategies were very direct and, and thoughtful and towards an end. You know, mm-hmm.
0: and I, it, it, something interesting about this, too, is that that this might all sound like, oh, this is something that we are retrospectively coming to about the early Internet here in 2022. But I would direct you to our episode on Cybertypes by Lisa Nakamura, mm-hmm. in which Lisa Nakamura is saying this contemporary to that moment. Right. She yeah. she is looking at kind of uh, communities of affinity on websites Uh, You know particularly around ethnicity she's looking at those chain emails that we talked about there in order to talk about how the early internet and its communication form had a very distinct uh, you know set of guardrails as as you're talking about she doesn't really as far as I can remember doesn't really get into forums specifically but you can really easily I think trace how what she's talking about from like 95 96 97 how that moves into forums, you know, um, uh, in a structural
1: sense. Yeah. 96% of posting on the Internet today is stuff you would have been banned for
0: 10 <laughs> or 15
1: years ago. Like, and That's not even science. just because you're like being awful. It's like literally you just came in, said you you, what we call today, like the 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 shit post. Right. Uh, you just came in. You made a shit post. Go away like we don't want you here um, and obviously yeah. the social is predicated on its exclusions etc 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 but like the, <laughs> right. my point is right like the what posting was has changed <laughs> yes <laughs> okay okay solid snake uh uh-huh. uh um,
0: posting post- <laughs> posting changes
2: <laughs> i should really quick and like, this is a real vibe shift uh, this has reminded me of a thing I meant to say earlier, and I'll be quick about this because I don't need to get into it too deep. But this book, despite my, <laughs> I, I said before, I wish it had engaged in in that sort of self critique a little bit around around race better. Um, but it also it includes some stuff from Zach S and the RPG pundit with Zach oh, Smith the friggin and, and, and the freaking drill character. Pundit
1: of the yeah, RPG with, with, Pundit. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah, uh, uh, without situating those things. and oh, RPG right. Pundit generally is just a, a jerk and an asshole and is, you know, uh, uh, I think they put this book positions him as an oppositional figure to the Forge and what the Forge wants. It does position him as a reactionary, uh, but a kind of lowercase r reactionary. Um, what you need to understand is he was a capital R reactionary uh, in, in a key way, which is, in his support of Zach S, uh, who, uh, is an alleged sexual abuser, uh, who was removed from the most recent edition of uh, Dungeons and Dragons as a contributor after winning a bunch of indie awards and being a, this big figure. Um, uh, and, and this book does not, that all happened before this book was published. Uh, I don't know the exact dates on when this book's final draft got in and stuff, but based on this book's copyright date, uh, that stuff, I don't know how you talk about Zach S and RPG pundit without explaining their connection to the tabletop role playing game sphere's equivalent of GamerGate, mm-hmm. um, uh, the the deeply misogynistic, uh, the deeply um, uh, uh, again reactionary politics that come from these people, um, uh, the ways in which real um, claims of of abuse were were or you know were dismissed and were. Uh, strategically used to then kind of take shots at uh, the uh, ever diversifying uh, a space of, of tabletop role playing games. Mm-hmm. I think that stuff has to either be hit on, or those people don't get to be be here in any capacity, even as a, a kind of opponents of the Forge. Um, I think that it's it's a dereliction to to just let them speak in that way here without without at least contextualizing uh, who these folks are. So.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I, I you know I think in that case specifically because I also noted that when I was reading it and there's something really interesting I guess that happens there where uh, the book itself methodologically is so zoomed out and yes. so focused yes. on reportage that that's that's the escape hatch right of not having to engage with those things. But yeah, the fact that those things even occurred or not included in this book, which I also thought was a quite a weird choice. And it's a choice, right? Uh,
1: Yeah. In in particular, I was thinking about this, uh, you know, again, not in this sphere at this particular time in my life, but I was thinking about that with this chapter. Um, because it's all about like the, the Forge, the Forge's big model, uh, which we've already talked about to some extent, right? We have, uh, it, rather than being um, dramatist, which is what comes out of the RGFA, whatever that is. Um, mm-hmm. I use it's, that <laughs> Yeah, it's GNS, which is gamist, narrativist, or simulationist. Uh, and a lot of the response, like the the kind of reactionary response to some of this. Or rather, and this is, this is, I'm glad to get some of this context uh, in this discussion uh, because some of the reactions to this particular model are people who are saying things like, um, well, by by saying that TRPGs can, in fact, be even classified along these axes, uh, they're trying to divide us, whatever us is like some sort of weird uh, fantasized, like unitary community of TRPG players. And now suddenly, like someone at my table has w- heard the word narrative and I can't control them <laughs> anymore. Um uh, but there's also people who are saying things like, well, I just didn't like the forge because, uh, they looked down on you. If you liked D and D and if you wanted to do something good and traditional like D and D, then they would, uh, just laugh you out of there or make fun of you. And, uh, You know, at this particular time, like, I am hanging out in a lot of science fiction circles on LJ, and a lot of these people end up being reactionaries, and they are making these Mm -hmm. exact same arguments about the ways that, like, genre fiction is moving, because they're like, I just want to write a Heinlein story, and I can't even do that anymore. Uh, And so, knowing that, right, and knowing kind of, like, where that space went, uh, and then hearing... Like echoes of or like like formal echoes of the same type of argument here, but not getting any of that context. Yeah, felt a little like I I, I was, I guess, weird. But I, I was like, I wish I knew more about kind of where this goes, because wanting to play D&D and wanting to make a game that is more like D&D than something else doesn't necessarily make you a reactionary. But it's specifically this kind of effective attitude of something that is different from what I want to exist is starting to exist. And that is an insult to me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it goes to the places you think it goes, uh-huh. you know? Um, right. uh, through corporate capture, eventually, right? Through both corporate capture of both sides of both. Um, there are things that will never change about D D for fear of, of alienating those consumers. Republicans buy sneakers too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as Michael Jordan said, um, uh, but also the capture of the kind of uh, progressive, you know, uh, increasingly diverse. Uh, the, the recognition that that it turns out that people of color uh, women and queer folks all buy games too right and so now how do we leverage that how do we invite a certain subset in how do we how do we make sure that our products meet some bare minimum standard uh, here I, I, that won't offend people. I don't know. A New York Times article came out today about who is playing D&D um, uh, and uh, it feels like the most Wizards of the Coast pitched thing I've ever read um, down to someone talking about how, how they, they fixed all of the racism in Curse of Strahd uh, oh, okay. which let me tell you, they did not do. They did not make that game they, they've changed some things in the Curse of Strahd module but that game is still uh, based on some some real pernicious uh, stereotypes around around travelers um people should go listen to your podcast on thinner uh to to hear more about that
0: yeah um, weirdly enough those are uh, uh, thinner and curse of straw emerge in the same moment
2: yeah, yeah of course yeah of course they do you right? the mid 80s I mean, right I, so i was having this conversation with someone on a different discord recently um, who uh, – and I'm not throwing this person under the bus because I think that their intuition makes sense in a certain mode. I suspect mm-hmm. that they're younger than us. But they said that they'd been listening to Just King things and were surprised uh, by how regressive some of King's works were in questions of race and, and uh, gender uh, and politics in general um, because of King's reputation. and And my response to them was effectively – king has the reputation partially because of that regressiveness the mm-hmm, regressiveness yeah. wasn't regressive it's normative in fact it's regressive to our particular views of these things because we are in insular communities that have self-selected according to to at least some sort of broader political project or or, or perspective let's say around around things like hey everybody in this space should be treated uh, as equals right and and everyone here fundamentally is a human being with the same rights and dignities uh, accrue to them and that just simply wasn't the case <laughs> in in the eras in which King and D D rose into prominence, um, and it's it is part of the function of those works growing to prominence is their role in shaping the social right, and in their role of uh, performing some exclu- an exclusionary move um, that is not a mistake or an outlier. That is, those are the sorts of works that get to be valorized uh, inside of a society that is fundamentally unequal. Uh, um, and I think that it is easy to forget that. Um, and and it's one of those things that I think it's interesting reading this, this Forge Theory chapter is the people in the Forge who are writing at this time, it's easy to go back to them now and be like, oh my god, y'all were kind of racist and sexist in these ways. And, and yet at the time, we're being were positioned against the, the kind of reactionary norm and and neither side had developed a full lexicon of what would develop into the contemporary culture war there was a culture war happening there too but it was not happening with the terms that we're having now and it's interesting to see how that was playing out here even in this kind of theoretical space
0: yeah absolutely and really this 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 chapter maneuver here right is from gns to a i don't know the word robust feels appropriate but also it's pretty <laughs> underselling how like muddy and weird it is right yeah. like it's, it's a bigger, more, uh, you know, like this is how I think sometimes, right? The big model to me is like, what if you took one of those like big rotating planetary models and nothing worked right? <laughs> like, everything was just like out of orbit and it wiggled around and like, you know, kind Plank, of jiggled. Clunk. Yeah, right. It's like in the Dark Crystal when they when they go meet Mogra, right? And she's got that big, <laughs> the spheres running around. It's like, what if that didn't work, right? So mm-hmm. like all of those things are rotating around and they're all discreet and theorized. And, you know, there uh, is the stuff around like uh, the agendas that people have that are involved. But you read Ron Edwards explaining these things, right? And a lot of this chapter is dedicated to uh, people went to the forge. They wanted to be told what the big model was. They uh-huh. could not figure it out. <laughs> it, it was really annoying. And and then you read, and you're like, oh, that's a little bit weird, right? They could just read the threads. And then you then you read, like, pages of Ron Edwards explaining. You're like, oh, shit, this is the most annoying conversation that a person could have. <laughs> in which anything that you bring up is De facto excluded because it's not in the language that Ron Edwards is already using But somehow he's already eaten what you've said and put it into his model, right? Mm-hmm. It's the ultimate kind of like look I did a lot of years of competitive debate and I can see a lot <laughs> of, uh, of uh, This kind of consumptive argumentation that is very typical of competitive debate, which is uh, Here's the thing that's a great example you brought up. My model eats that. The way that you thought about it before is wrong. Mm-hmm. Like that that's how c- the game of debate operates. And that's exactly how the big model functions, which isn't to say that it doesn't have outputs, right? Like obviously it has outputs and it, it's powerful for people, but it's very clear from the perspective of 2022 why people found this very frustrating and, and very muddy and Mm -hmm. uh, wordy and inconsistent in its application because it clearly was well
1: i mean on Um, on page 147 i don't know if white made this or if this is something that was made by someone on the forge but it's the graphical (laughs) representation of the big model and it looks like a john (laughs) boys joke it like does. this looks like a fake graphic that John boys would post on Twitter um, because yes. it's like three inset uh, squares with a whole bunch of like labels like exploration and techniques and there's like in, in the innermost square there's like a big list of things and like subheadings and then there's like a smaller square even below this and there's like a bracket that marks this thing <laughs> that's the ephemera that's actual play uh, behind it all though there's like <laughs> there's a giant arrow like receding into the like like sort of aiming down to the left corner of the entire graphic that just says creative agenda uh, and like I've read the book so I know what these things are oh. and I under- like for, for instance creative agenda which I already alluded to like I think that's a really cool idea and I think that's something that's really useful for thinking through what happens in a tabletop setting So I'm not like trying to, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, shit on the big model here, uh, but Mm -hmm. just like even this representation, it's like a Ptolemaic representation of the solar system, right? (laughs) Where it's like we we have to keep coming up with epicycles to fit in the orbits of these wandering stars.
2: Like, and you get how you get there which is these are I, I think it, it somewhere in here someone says like you know the, the form uh, the forge ends up being a place where you go to get to have smart people yell at you or something to that effect mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's clear that these are in, people engaged in their practice in a real way who are good at I mean it's very funny there's a couple of, of, of throwaway lines in here I think from Ralph Mazza maybe also from Ron Edwards about like how they don't buy into that postmodern shit right mm-hmm. um, uh, quote unquote ba- paraphrasing um, uh, but the the thing being done here is has a postmodern impulse which is I mean it has a postmodern impulse then that returns to a sort of structuralist impulse the postmodern impulse is that they look at the the currently available, uh, tools of analysis and say, well, those tools aren't good enough. Those tools are actually contradictory. Those tools create a certain sort of uh, incoherence. Um, specifically, they're looking at the, the gamist, uh, dramatist, and uh, simulationist divide that becomes the narrativist instead of dramatist divide that you talked about. And they say that's an okay starting point, but it actually fails to meet a lot of these other elements. And we can still use some of it, but we need to like, let's get deeper in. Let's, let's, let's show how these things are contradictory. Let's show how... Blah 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 blah, and then they want to create this new structuralist model that is like, here is the perfect version of the, uh, uh, or not the perfect version, but here is a a diagnostic tool, which is what I think you would they would say, or some people might call the big model, is it's a it's a it's a tool for looking at a real thing and saying how does it use these things, what is the creative agenda, etc. But it ends up itself being calcified and turned into uh, a bludgeon over and over again in the examples that the book gives. Even in cases where I don't know if the book thinks that that's what it's framing, but that is what's happening,
0: you know? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, and, and what's quite interesting to me, I guess, about this is like, as you were talking about, Michael, like creative agenda. It gets, de- it gets defined on the, that facing page 146, right? Creative agenda understood in Forge terms as the aesthetic priorities of a group of players. Okay, but... Okay,
2: cool. Is that true? Is that what a creative agenda is? Or, as it continues (laughs) to be used throughout the book, is it something that lives in the game? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes a game is said to have a creative agenda. Sometimes it's a table. Sometimes it's a particular instance of play. Sometimes a player has a creative agenda. And it's so funny to me that it is exactly the thing that you said, Cameron, which is like, I read this whole book being like, can they just tell me what the big model is so I can just add it to my list of glossary terms for this book? And they finally do. And it takes, or he finally does and takes 25 pages. And I left it going like, I guess I get the big model.
1: Yeah. I still don't know what the impossible thing before breakfast means.
2: Uh, I do. Okay. I do. I can tell you what that is. The impossible thing before breakfast is the belief. I don't know why it's called that. I couldn't give you the etymology. Okay. But it's the belief that The GM controls the story, Uh -uh. and the players control the characters. Okay, all right. So, and that's in that's impossible because the characters drive story, uh, whether whether a GM wants them to or not. And so, if you're trying to make a game where that's true, you have you have failed in some way. You you've, you've set yourself up for. Uh, quote-unquote incoherencies, which is a whole Mm -hmm. other chapter, Mm -hmm. a whole other term that gets used in this book that drives me up the fucking wall. Go back to
1: episode one on the Yule. (laughs) Um, Uh,
2: 100%. Like coherency doesn't exist in a work it exists in the world and it is it is if there was a fatal flaw of forge theory as it's pro- as it's produced here i was not on the forge posting so maybe this is not true but the way incoherency is used as a cudgel against things to say this does not have a cohesive i e. thematic core that runs through it is an incorrect use of the word coherent because coherency is about reception, it's not about production. Something is coherent to a person. And let me tell you, look at the fucking numbers. Vampire the Masquerade, incredibly coherent to millions of people. Is right. it a good game is a separate question. Does it achieve the goals it sets out is a separate question. But I think framing something in coherency, especially in a movement that sets itself up as oppositional to the franchise, the franchisization, the mm-hmm. the big boom in branding, is like you're, you're moving off the you're, – you're pivoting off the wrong foot immediately. Um, you know, again. a talk years ago against coherency in game design uh and think that like this group could have used a big dose of that and and a realignment which is not to say that i think the creative agenda and the idea that a game should be trying to be about something is not valuable i actually think those are very very valuable but it's a different question than coherency and i think that that's like one of those things that i wish there was one more really loud speaker in the forge to yell that 20 years ago
0: you know yeah the uh you know uh the there's there's something really interesting around that, right? Around like uh, incoherent or coherency having a kind of a priori value to it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, not to not to also sound like a weird postmodern guy, right? But there is <laughs> a sci- yeah. there is a scientism, right, that yes. underlies this whole thing, oh. meaning the idea that or, or almost like a positivism, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Mm-hmm. In in I the mean. sense that that everyone agrees, right? That because one of the the um, Criticisms uh, against the big model that apparently comes up repeatedly is it's unscientific meaning that presumably <laughs> yes. what they mean here that's not really explained but presumably what they mean here is that like you haven't gone out and pulled a bunch of people and you haven't done some signed, up you know sociological or data driven analysis that determines that what we theorize about games on the Forge is, is correct or not right I mean that's the, the general use of unscientific here. But what is fascinating to me is that the response to the big model is unscientific. The the response is not it doesn't have to be because that's not how like cultural analysis Uh works, which is really (laughs) what this is. Right. It's a descriptive cultural analysis that produces things in the world uh the 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 analysis is it's just pre scientific right mm-hmm. like we're trying to get all the all the chess pieces right on the board so then that we could go and do a scientific analysis right mm-hmm. um one day the big model could be empirical if yes. it wanted to be, and that's wild to me and, and also I think we have not said, but which comes up a couple of times in the book and is probably important here and is definitely important in the next chapter is that Ron Edwards is a professor of
1: zoology, yes it's- and <laughs> yeah go ahead ahead. this is this is one of the things that is like so incredible about the create or not the creative agenda but the big model is that it's uh uh, plugging into what you just said it's about the proliferation of things right it's aristotelian in this sense of like we're observing the world and then we have to come up with like labels and categories for everything we're seeing and so for instance in the in the uh uh, big model graphic um there's like a little sidebar that has dysfunctional or problematic play slash design and this is where the impossible thing before breakfast is listed but it's also listed with um let's see here one, two, three, four five six seven eight (laughs) like nine other things that are just like bad design philosophies or like bad things to have happen at the table um and in a way it's like uh, uh in terms of like creating a model that is going to let people use that model to then make better games uh listing all of these like weird problems that come up in certain situations. It's like listing every single way you could misspell a word. <laughs> right? Like, I kind of, right? Like, yes. like, give me what works. Don't bother, <laughs> like, showing all of the bad things.
2: And it's funny because I feel like there are times in this book where it seems as if Edwards gets that, because I think there's at least one example where someone posts about, like, Hey, I got some bad things going on at the table. Uh, I, I just want some advice generally about how to make my table play better. And Ron Edwards is like, this is not appropriate for, for this form. <laughs> post an actual experience in the in the actual play forms. And of course, the person ends up going to a different form to RPG.net and just being like, hey, I'm having, I just want to know what are some t- things that didn't work at a table for you? And it had some like productive, uh, response to that. Um, and, and so it's like, It seems as if there are times at which Edwards understands that you can't get anywhere just by listing bad things. But at other times, like I said that this was a diagnostic tool, and I actually mean that in a very medicalized sense, because there's an entire section in in this chapter, I think it's in this chapter, that really does feel, it's not just the scientism. And the the like sudden obsession with falsify falsifiability and all that other stuff it mm-hmm. is just like ah uh, by by moving this lens into place i can see that the problem with your game is you you've gotten into some deep here and if you could fix <laughs> that problem then maybe you'd realign your creative agenda you know uh, and it's it's i don't know it's very funny
0: well, and, and so that, I think that leads back to, you know, to, to re- thinking big about the book here, right? It, it goes back to this question of method, because I am mm-hmm. also really interested in similar kinds of questions that White is in this book, not not within particular communities necessarily, but I am interested really, like as a scholar, I how do things change and how do things move? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I've written a piece, um, you know, it's in like an edited volume that's about like, what what was the formation of of the souls born like what and how did that move you know so when like iron pineapple can do all those videos that's like i played nine other dark souls like games yep. like what does that mean right you know like we understand it intuitively but what does it mean that something can be formally um you know uh moving along within that that realm right um or you could do so so you know uh, and I'm doing a similar thing with the magic book, but so I guess my like question here, my thing is that I know that there are methods for approaching this, right? Mm-hmm. There there are distinct methods. One of them that, you know, bleeds dire- directly into what you just said, Austin, is uh, Foucault, right? Like you don't got to go deep on Foucault, but when someone's entire contribution to like, you know, academic thought or scholastic thought is... How does a discourse shape the material world in front of people? And then how does the material world shape the discursive formations? That's literally the term Foucault uses, discursive formation. How do those things happen? Uh, And then you read this chapter that's like, About that, but without any of the the methodological specificity that someone working in that field might give you, it it just really feels like a missed opportunity. And honestly, I really think free free – free we love giving out free paper ideas, right? But free article idea for anyone who goes and does it, read this chapter – Go read the forge, and then write about the discursive formation of the form in in methodological terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be so enlightening and, and illuminating, I think, around some of the core issues that are going on here that don't kind of get caught up in the like you said diagnostic function of the of the big model, which is fascinating. I really appreciate that this uh, reportage is here because I would not know what this was without it. You know, I would and, also
2: I would also love the other version of this which doesn't – it blows past the big model. First of all, it doesn't post mm-hmm, – mm-hmm. one of my notes was post big model, I'm begging you. Because <laughs> this book goes 150 pages talking about the big model on and off, talking mm-hmm. about GNS, talking about these, these, these things without defining them in, in core terms. And then when it does get there, there are pages of terms like that. That, that, not, that list of nine dysfunctions that uh, we were just talking about. Um, it, it, those nine dysfunctions exist as one sentence descriptors over the course of like two pages. There is a page in this book where I just highlighted every new piece of jargon that was dropped, and it's just filled. Like it's just the whole page is just a new jargon word, a new jargon word, and it's all stuff that's on the big model, right? That's that's where you get like kickers mm-hmm. and bangs. It's where you get all these other kind of core things that are actually, I think. Actually useful when thinking about designing a tabletop role playing game, separate from um, separate from this particular moment of Forge history. But like this game or this this game, this book does not actually spend the time to explain what a kicker and a bang is, or to talk about uh, in in depth. For instance, what uh, a deep de- I guess I said this, this term before deprotagonization. What were some of the conversations around these things? If you gave these things space, like. This book isn't a working glossary of the big model. It doesn't it does mm-hmm. it isn't it isn't trying to be that, I guess. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's fine. but i but I think that would have I think I would have felt more rewarded in this chapter if it had given if it had done some of that, that's not just summary work, um but the sort of uh, uh, you know, architectural work of producing in the reader a sense of how this tool might be used instead of just laying out, All of the different things in the in the toolbox, if that makes sense. You know, Mm -hmm. I I know I think this is a hammer. I think I hit things with the heavy end, but I guess I'm not 100 percent sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think this this chapter really weirdly enough in the way. And I guess we'll move on to chapter five uh, in just a second. But weirdly enough, I think chapter five manages this balance. But as we Mm -hmm. were just talking about, some of these chapters are very zoomed out. You know, in the sense of like, they don't give maybe stakes for citing some people, right? Or, or they allow for a schematic analysis to stand in for maybe the, you know, white taking a, a particular stance on something. And then like this chapter, I think summarizing a lot of what we just said, it's just way too close. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there, there is an assumed familiarity with all of this that, that means it's really difficult to extract like what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a place where being a part of the forum really influences the way that that white writes about this and knowing all these people. Right. And and uh, this is something that we talked about with the Peterson book. Right. Like the your community that you're a part of white is a part of these communities. Mm-hmm. Right. And that that changes the way you write an academic book. And uh, I think that the laundry listing of terms here Uh, over contextualization, or summary, or glossary, or whatever, might come from being just way too close to, Mm -hmm. you know, a generalized community understanding that, of course, you know what a bang and a kicker is, which, when I came upon it in the book, I went, oh, I must have missed this before. (laughs) Where where was this before? And I, like, flipped back a few pages, and no, it's just, like, dropped in here, and it feels important, but I couldn't tell you what it is having read the book, so... Um, yeah, I, you know, a I think that a bang is like this... an
2: in media res, or or just a general um, uh, uh, kind of. Kickoff to mm-hmm. uh, to a story instead of it. It's it's sort of like here's why you care about this in the moment. Let's go. Let's get into it. Here's a here's a, a the start of a story in a big, and explosive way. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but then you decide where it goes from there. I'm not gonna. I'm not railroading you in another term into into the next stage of the story. I'm instead giving you a really juicy and evocative and uh, a character forward. Uh, reason for the story to start, and then kickers are things that happen that you maybe plan ahead of time that can keep a story going, that can mm. add some twist to it, you know? Um, sorry, I just wanted to define that term for people listening, be like, what the fuck is a banger or a kicker?
0: So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I, I, I say, did not know. <laughs> yeah, I will
2: say the end of this chapter, gesturing towards chapter 5 being my favorite chapter, starts to get really good. Um, uh, there's a section called, What Good is the Big Model? And it's, yeah. I, it makes me feel very strongly that White does understand <laughs> fundamentally what has happened here. Uh, on page 163, White says, I'm just going to jump around here a little bit. When laid out in its entirety, the big model thus reveals itself not to be an unreasonable perspective on the structures and interactions within uh, within where tabletop role-playing games take place. Its major theoretical contribution to the scholarship of role-playing is to direct attention to the phenomenological motivation for playing at all. Mm-hmm. It, in, in other words, what the forge and the big model did was say, hey, People have agendas. People have priorities. They bring those priorities to the table. They build those priorities into the game. To fail to acknowledge that means you're making worse games and you're having you know less, uh, uh, uh you know, fulfilling play than you could have than if you paid attention to it. And there's a long section. Uh, for, there's a long section of quotes from other people saying, "Was this." A distraction? Was this useful? Was it a tangent? And all of those quotes end up being really good. This is where that quote, um, I mis-paraphrased I mis- I mis- I mis- this before. This is from Dave Berg, who says, I came to the Forge hoping that uh, that experts on designing RPGs would give me expert advice on how to make my own game. I was hoping that people would say, here's what you're doing right, here's what you're doing wrong. That particular problem you're trying to solve has already been solved, and here's the solution. Instead, I got just smart people's opinions. Uh, and goes on to explain, you know, hey, here's – you know, someone maybe did say, hey, maybe you, you're making an assumption about immersion. Maybe you're taking some techniques for granted, et cetera. And it was not useful in the direct. It was not here's how you, here's how you tighten up the screw on, on your loose – you know, the loose engine or whatever. Instead, it was broader, long-term useful in, in the sort of um, uh, craft theory way. Uh, and right. I think that this stuff is all really good.
0: Yeah, sometimes people just want to know how to tighten up the graphics on level three. <laughs> that's that's true. Um, but I agree. I also thought the end of this chapter was really good. And I also thought, I was like, oh, yeah, White does, like, in the medium view, right? Not <gasps> yeah. hyper-zoomed in, but not, yep. not hyper-zoomed out. Does really kind of get this. I, you know, editorially reading this, you know, and look, writing a book is hard, and writing an academic book is extremely hard. And like, I have infinite, I've said this on many episodes, I have infinite empathy for any single human being who has accomplished it because it is very difficult. Like, I, I can just, you know, acknowledge that um, and say it. But also, this should have been at the beginning of the chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is, these are yeah. the stakes for the chapter. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> they should be at the beginning of the chapter. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a part, of, part of the, Part of the joy of doing game study study buddies, right? In a general sense, it's like looking at how other people solved a problem that it's like a real problem to have. And like, this is extremely illustrative to me because I'm deeply worried about some of these issues myself working on this magic project, which is like, I've been playing this game for 15 years. I know it inside and out. I know all kinds of weird things about it. I know all of these historical transformations. There are huge pitfalls that I would never be able to see that are very Uh easy to fall into. And I think White actually avoids a huge number of those that I'm afraid that I might do myself. But even something like this in which White clearly knows what the stakes are and they are um, uh, just uh, implicit the whole way through and not explicit. Uh, that's the thing that I'm, I'm wary of myself too. So I, I find this really, I'm not just saying that to be like, Hey, you should have written your book better, but <laughs> Hey, Hey, I understand exactly how this happened. And I, am I'm, I'm going to make an effort to, to maybe do it a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but so yeah, em- huge empathy for, for, uh, you know, any, anything like this. Do we want to talk about the, the, um, favorite, the general favorite chapter five? Yes.
1: Yes. So you couldn't edit your posts on the forge. (laughs) That's your favorite part. Uh, Chapter five (laughs) is called go read the threads communication at the forge. Um, And we get kind of a rundown of like, what, what were the posting rules and what was the moderation culture? So like I said, you, you couldn't edit posts, which I think is interesting, right? That, that means something. It means you can't, you can't go in and like, uh, Take out something someone has given you shit for, for instance, or like change your wording uh, to try to like, you know, know, finagle your way into or out of some type of argument. Um, uh, But there's also like in my notes, I said the moderation policy uh, seems to be both harsh and lax in a way that is very particular to like the mid 2000s forums as I remember them, because it's kind of like. Uh, you know, don't show up and shitpost, right? Make sure that you are being uh, uh, like productive or you're engaging or you're you're adding value to whatever conversation is going on and you will be chastised uh, if you do not do this. And on the other hand, if someone comes in and they're like straight up a bad actor, there's very much a kind of uh, don't feed the trolls thing going on here. Uh, where I don't know if it's Edwards who's being quoted on this or, or someone else, but talking about how, um, you know, if, if there's, like, truly, truly a bad actor, like, they are taken care of, uh, but in general, if someone's a shit-stirrer, rather than, like, slapping them down, because that's going to, like, reinforce their feelings of being the um, misunderstood outsider who's raging against the system or whatever, um, just kind of make fun of them or ignore them. Make sure they're not allowed to talk to anyone. <laughs>
0: It, it really, really is at that time in form culture of this era. It's like the puppet master figure. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And Ron Edwards is like the ultra. He's just saying it out loud, right? He's like, I'm the puppet master. <laughs> like, I understand how human beings communicate with one another on a fundamental level. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know if you give them what they want, they're going to keep wanting it. So I'm just not going to do that. And I'm going to philosophize about that. It, it, it's fascinating. I don't know if it's good <laughs> or bad, but it is interesting to read about. Would you believe that Ron
2: Edwards' huge contribution to the field was a role-playing game about kind of amoral sorcerer kings uh-huh. who, who uh, could do troubling and uh, eventually uh, self-destructive things with their magic? Huh. Huh.
0: Hmm. Interesting. All right. no, Not no, no. to jump is to it...
2: any conclusions or to do any sort of armchair psychology, uh, which is also a thing <laughs> where <Edward laughs> yes. it seems competent or... or dead devoted to doing, let's say. Oh
0: no, it's not it is not armchair psychology. It is armchair neuropsychology. (laughs) (laughs) And, <laughs> but it's uh, even
2: in this troll stuff, right? Like before yes. we even get to the yeah, controversy, you're right. You're right. which we'll right. keep punting because this chapter also kept punting it, referring to it like it should not be named uh, directly or looked at directly until I don't know ten pages in or something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the way in which the the troll strategy is also this sort of armchair psychology, right? It is mm-hmm. it is the again it's the it's just human nature thing. It's a, it's a lot of smart people feeling like they have a handle on how other people work mm-hmm. and the decision to like this is the best way to handle a troll is to is to respond by like you know, uh, chiding them or scolding them versus getting into the flame war. They want the flame war, but if you kind of take the higher ground and give them a little tut tut, and maybe tease tease them with somebody else, but not in a flamey way, not in a you're engaging on their level way. Then that will that will you know put the reins on them somehow. Mm-hmm. And like that is the vibe, and it's so it's so in line with where this eventually all goes in terms of the
0: uh, the controversy. Well, it's very teacherly. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, well, it's, right. That's very much, you know, like, oh, hey, you know, you can't, you can't kick somebody out of the class. They got to take zoology one hundred and one. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. it's both like teacherly and like some of the strongest like guy in charge of a forum energy. <laughs> that I have ever read, right? Like, on the Homestuck show, we talk very often about the way that, like, Andrew Hussey responds to, um, like, controversies with the reader base, and we often right. compare that to people like Maddox or, like, Lotax of the Something mm-hmm. Awful forums, mm-hmm. and it it's, like, very, very much this kind of, like, no, I you I sit here on my pinnacle of posts. And, uh, you know, enforce my will upon the land. And, like, I can see things with, like, like a clarity that no one else around me can see by virtue of being at the center of all this.
2: Mm -hmm. Can I say that this, like, fucks me up in a weird and personal way? Because there were moments – okay, so I am not a Ron Edwards. I do not have that scale of, of, of influence on a field. Um, I did not run the forge. Um, I didn't run the waypoint forums or the waypoint discord, but I was a public figure there. Uh, and if though, if, if waypoint had happened a decade before, I suspect I would have tried to run them the way Ron Edwards did in this philosopher king way, where uh, rulings come down from on high. And I think instead, I I operated in my public sphere spaces. I'm not in any of these spaces anymore. I'm not on the, the Waypoint forums, really. I'm not on the Waypoint Discord. I'm not on the Friends of the Table Discord anymore. Fully have extricated myself from these places for my own mental health uh, and for time reasons. Um, uh, but part of that was I did not want to ever shut down communication or criticism about me or anything I had done, much of which was good faith. All of which I think was good faith. Much of it, much of it was extremely deserved for when I made mistakes because people make mistakes. Um, uh, but, um, I definitely didn't participate in this sort of handing down, uh, uh my rulings from on high or, or prizing, um, sort of dialogue with me as a key component of these social spaces and there is a real, it's a very interesting thing for me to think about the role of the, cent, the cent, a central figure inside of a community and how that what the strategies around that are and how I think if I had done the things I did, I'd done 10 years prior I would look a lot like Ron Edwards and a lot less like Austin Walker and I think that that is I mean and that's that's very reductive we have different backgrounds. I am not a zoology, uh, uh, I'm not a zoology PhD or doctor. Uh, I am black. I think both of those things would shape the relationship between myself and others strongly. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, it is it is something I've spent a lot of like brain cycles on since reading this stuff and thinking about what the role of the and also and also the spaces I was just talking about. Are not directly public spaces in the way that the forge was, where anybody could click on it and come and gawk, which is what I think partially does start to happen around the brain damage controversy. Mm-hmm.
0: What, right, which it, we can we can yeah we can hop right into because I I, I think that it. That controversy gives an inroad to also the other stuff happening in the yes. chapter.
1: I think it's also a really good uh, uh, crystallization of certain critiques we've had of the way had of the the book and the way that its argument is structured thus far. Because mm-hmm. um, I was talking with you about this, Cameron is like this is the section where I was going back and reading the actual posts. Yes, um, mm-hmm. because uh, short version, what happens is uh, Edwards makes a post where he claims that uh, kids are. It's specifically kids, right? Younger TRPG players are receiving, quote, brain damage from playing certain types of games that is like warping their ability to both produce and understand what narrative is. Um, And he he really digs down into this and like really holds this position. Uh, and it, it becomes a, a huge flashpoint of controversy and criticism. Um, But I was reading the forum posts because I could not from just this writing right from from the way that this was written, I could not really understand what Ron Edwards thinks is happening in this bad situation. And here's the other thing. Going back and reading the posts, I still couldn't figure it out. Mm -hmm. Um, like, because ultimately, and here, here's like what I realized, like, as I got toward the end of the chapter, I don't know what Ron Edwards thinks is a good story. Right. Like what, (laughs) like he's saying, here are all the things that are bad. Like these kids are bad, uh, at storytelling, uh, and they don't know it. And the game is encouraging them to be bad, but he's not really saying specifically what is bad and what he would prefer. And none of that gets laid out in the argument here.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think in a very basic way, and this is something I came to at the end of the last chapter, and I think it's like a thing that it has to do with this closeness, right, that, that White mm-hmm. has to it, where, where obviously White has a different feeling than I do. Someone who is very far removed from all of this is that I think on a fundamental level, the things that Ron Edwards says on that forum are incoherent mm-hmm. in, in the sense that they do not cohere into a linear argument, uh, you know, and they are only phenomenologically coherent. Right. Mm -hmm. As we were talking about earlier, in the sense of in a moment of reception, in a moment of reading, in a context, right, any given context, they then turn into an argument, you know, apophonetically (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, through pattern, pattern recognition, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I, because I, I just don't think on a fundamental level, you know, the argument makes very much sense. I mean, here, here's my reconstruction and my reconstruction really is a reconstruction that comes out of this podcast discussion from 2007 between Clyde someone, um, I'm blanking on Clyde's first name. And Rod Edwards, it's on page uh, 187. No, something Clyde, maybe. This use of first and last names. It's, it's like, brutal. Yeah. It, it really got me across the book. But anyway, so it's on 187, 188 is where this comes up. And so basically, uh, Ron Edwards is moving through this kind of thing of like, hey, uh, it, like the the human capability to like understand things in the world is developmental, Right. Mm-hmm. And then Clyde's like, yeah, I guess, yeah, it is. Right. And so if it is developmental, then like stimuli impact the, like, you know, running operations of the hardware of the brain, you know, and that, that is like the brain is not a machine. Please don't take it that way. But right. The, the physical thing, what in another world, if, for example, we were putting this in conversation with other theories, uh, you know, Catherine Malibu Malibu is called neuroplasticity, right. Mm -hmm. The ability for the brain to take in stimuli and then transform the way we engage with the world. Um, That's essentially what Ron Edwards is arguing for here, right? And so, you know, Ron says, is behavior physiological? Meaning that is stimuli or are stimuli, are they written on the brain? Uh, And do, do they create trauma responses? Do they create triggers things like that and then Claude's like I yeah I don't like where are you taking me and he's like then therefore the way we tell stories is physiological bing bang boom
1: it's brain damage
0: I mean that, <laughs> right. that's right. essentially the argument that is played, played, vampire
1: right? the masquerade uh, is trauma to you and you don't even realize it's it
0: uh-huh. right I mean that's what he says
2: uh, so there is I think there is one other important part of this context that shows up somewhere in this book that I did not note down because I am a fool um <laughs> Mm-hmm. about the unit about what i believe is edwards's belief about the universality of i believe it's in this chapter of story mm-hmm. right. that stories yes. are fundamentally Grockable, that they're legible across culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that that there are there might be resistance to a certain type of story because of cultural difference or because of uh, a sort of bullheaded ignorance, but that fundamentally you can translate stories. And I think he's making a sort of you know Campbellian, mm-hmm. you know, or Jungian, you know, or Jordan Peterson P- Petersonian a gesture towards the idea that stories exist as a universal. Um, uh, I hate to even, you know, Young and Campbell are not actually doing that if, you, if you're close reading. Uh, but they, they are talking about trends and about, about you know, anyway. Uh, the, he believes it. I think that Ron Edwards believes that there is such a thing as the story in this, you know, a priori way. Um, uh, and that, and that you get better, you get, you develop your story function in your brain as part of a developmental adolescence, uh, and that it formulates, and then you can make and understand stories and you might have different preferences, but your fun, your, your story muscle basically works in a normative fashion, which is absurd.
0: Um, (laughs) it is on face ridiculous, right? Like before we even think about the content of the thing, there is, like there there's 150 years of narrative theory. There's uh-huh. 150 years of social sociology of narrative, or uh, I guess 80 years of sociology of narrative. Right. Uh, there, there are whole disciplines dedicated to this. And I think that there's a weird thing that goes on where this book is like, Hey, Ron Edwards said this. And like, now we can backtrack a bunch of ideas out of this. Mm-hmm. When I think really partially what the book could have done is be like, Ron Edwards said this, this is a fringe idea that has emerged from, you know, Fully from the br- the brain of Ron it's like Athena, <laughs> <And what laughs> with zero context to it.
2: And what it's grounded in fundamentally is you're telling me that this is a game about politics, but what I do is pick up 7d10 and roll it to, to cut you with my super fast vampire claws. That's right. basically the problem here, right? right. Like, ba- basically, the thing that is happening is Ron Edwards is seeing a lot of people use a hammer when what they need is a, a winch or something, you know, or or is, use, or is using a club when what they need is, you know, a computer in his mind, mm-hmm. um, and is frustrated by that and sees it as – Capital D damaging, and and what I will say is, I think that there are ways to make this argument that don't devolve into this sort of weird physiological determinism about who a person is. Um, And I say this from like a position of uh, close proximity. Um, My mother had brain surgery when I was in first grade. Uh, My mother is brain damaged and is also a poet. And I think on one hand she would tell you, of course the the uh trauma that she suffered changed the way she was i will tell you from the outside looking in it uh, of course it did um uh but it did not limit her ability to tell or receive stories um nor and that's literal brain it's literally they put a drill in her you know Mm -hmm. and cut part of her brain away because of an arteriovenous malformation um uh because I don't think that's what's how stories function. Stories are not a, a thing that exists a priori or platonically or however you want to frame that. There is not a, a, a good story model out there that we're all trying to, to get at. If If playing Vampire the Masquerade uh, damages your brain. Then guess what? It's all brain damage, yeah. <laughs> buddy. Like it's all brain damage. We all went through the shaping of our aesthetic taste and 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 methods. Um, uh, and I think the thing that we I want to retain is the ability to criticize, uh, especially uh, media productions with large reaches. Did the marvelization of of cinema change the way people think about stories today? Absolutely. The yeah. way that people today think about the summer, even just the summer blockbuster, has changed in huge ways over the last decade because of Marvel films. I mean, the, the summer blockbuster damage.
0: is only 40 years old, right? right. And we treat it right. as if it is a natural <laughs> exactly. you know, occurrence of the world. Right, 100%. And there are like a million ways that one could get here, right? Yes, There's
2: and, Mark- and it's a better <laughs> argument. And the thing that's so right. loud is, uh, Michael, you, you said you can't edit your posts in on on the forms right Mm -hmm. that's like a key thing that's that's said early on and it turns out ron edwards also cannot edit his opinions there's a point at which he is presented with a big part of this chapter is this very interesting layout of like when this blows back up because like it blows up once and then it really blows up four years later towards the very end of the forms um uh and it breaks down like what are all the different arguments happening on this thread at the same time uh, and at one point Ron Edwards is like I've, I I will take this all into consideration and then three days later comes back and posts I was right I'm not deleting or changing anything and it is the most I could not edit the posts ideology ever. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and that's sort of the other thing that I think, obviously, they're like, again, guardrails on kind of like what you can uh, do as a scholar or interpretations you can make. But again, as someone who has spent a long time on the internet and spent a long time on forums... This also has so much the energy of like, I am in charge of a community. I have made a misstep. It has uh, ramified in a way that I could not have foreseen. And I am, I have mm-hmm. such a relationship with the community that I manage that I am under the impression that if I let up at all they will come for my blood so what i need to do is lock in on this as hard as i can even though i can recognize that maybe i shouldn't have said it in the first place
2: god it's so frustrating and again it really is because he thinks that vampire, the masquerade, is kind of a bad system that doesn't have good reward flow or whatever. Right, right. You know?
1: It feels like such a, a like, it, you know, uh, he has his PhD in zoology. So it feels like he wants, and he wants, he tries to justify his use of the term brain oh, damage through his background as a scientist, right? There, there's so much like wheel spinning here, trying to uh, gin up reasons for him being like, well, actually, it was totally justified for me to use that <laughs> specific term. I'm going to walk you through an understanding of brain damage just to show you how much I understand about brain damage and how Vampire the Masquerade does that to you by uh, allowing you to like pretend you're having an adventure but not modeling all of the court politics in granular detail. Yep. This is only
2: half the chapter and this is my <laughs> favorite part of the chapter because this is all nightmarish and it's interesting. I think letting it all out is really interesting.
0: Well, and, and I guess the last word on on that maybe or one yeah. final thing to say is that this really made me go, maybe maybe White should have just written a book on Ron Edwards, Mm-mm. yeah, like like, what the fuck is up with Ron Edwards? <laughs> like, the book, right? Because that is half of the word count of the for, for logic reasons or logical reasons because right, right. so much of the posting is Ron Edwards explaining stuff and so much of, like, the assumptions of the Forge are just what Ron Edwards said that other people responded to. And so if we're thinking <laughs> in big, broad terms about, like, what is a thing that would be so impactful from this research, it would be... A, a a volume that is half of the, you know, uh, half edited versions or maybe unedited versions of Ron Edwards's essays mm-hmm. so that people can just see them and see what's up with this like dude who was very influential and then uh, half a book of criticism or discussion of them of what's going mm-hmm. on uh, because that that book exists. It's just buried in another book on the forge, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Uh, we- and I think it's two discrete books. They would be very interesting.
2: You just gestured to how much Ron Edwards posted, and I realize now in retrospect, we did not say <laughs> those numbers, did we? We did no, not we, explain we, we that did not. basically this is the Ron Edwards and Mike Holmes form, and some other people are there to engaging in direct dialogue with these people. I don't, does anyone remember where that number actually shows up? Because it's an absurd number. I don't uh. think I have it in my notes.
1: It's, is it the I one will... where he's talking about how he could like post so much because he basically like worked a desk yes. job?
0: Yep, it's it, in yeah. that section.
2: And I think that that is exactly right. Uh, I think it's here. Uh, okay. Um, Forge users paid attention to the count to the posts uh, post counts of other users. Noted Ralph Maza, who is as Valamir was the third most active user at the site with fifty five hundred and eighty two posts. I know that's just Ralph Maza's number. Oh, here we go. <laughs> It's possible to examine the distribution on forty-one. It's possible to examine the distribution of post, uh, posts over posters. Out of a total of about forty-five hundred posters, two individuals have more than ten thousand posts each. These are Ron Edwards and Mike Holmes, with sixteen thousand four hundred ninety and ten thousand four hundred fifty-nine posts, respectively, amounting to eight percent of the sixty-six thousand forty-one posts on the site. Oof. Only forty-four posters, other than those two, have one thousand posts or more. Just over uh just over ten times that number, four or four hundred and seventy-one posters besides these forty-six have one hundred or more posts. Fully two thousand plus posters have between ten and ninety-nine posts. So it's like people are not these are it's what you said before, Michael, that like these are long form posts. Mm-hmm. Uh they are engaging in this deep way but and it's not shit posting or low effort posting but mostly it's someone posting and then ron edwards engaging with them back and forth until their issue is like until ron edwards says all right we're good go with god and and moves on to the next
1: di- diagnostic yeah you know oh my god like and yeah. that's the second half of this chapter and it is so incredible <laughs>
2: It's incredible. Please tell us about the second half of this chapter.
1: I mean, the the thought that I had when I was reading, like, I, I think this is the highlight of the book, is like seeing this walkthrough yep. of some. Uh, we get sort of two versions. One is actually White's own thread, uh, where he made a. Uh, it was, I think, it was in the actual play. Uh, Forum. Yeah, both of these are from the actual play forum. Uh, The first one is White walking through a tabletop experience he had and sort of, you know, wanting to theorize or wanting some feedback. And uh, Ron Edwards ends up coming in and and providing some thoughts there. Uh, And then the second one, which I think is really, really fascinating, is this person who comes in and says like, hey, my tabletop group and I just had an incredible game. Like we loved it. Everything went swimmingly. However, uh, we had no creative agenda like we 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 didn't do any of this stuff. Uh here's how the game worked out. How did how did all of this happen if we don't if we aren't following these rules? And the thing that is so fascinating here is Ron Edwards comes in and tells other people not to reply. That's not to post while he and the OP go back and forth talking through and it it becomes the the diagnostic scene, right? It's the scene of psychoanalysis. It is. Where where Edwards comes in, like as the person who knows, and he sort of walks through and then he says, I've solved the problem. It turns out you have a creative agenda, but you're all in such sync with one another that you don't have to state it at the beginning. Right. So (laughs) turns out, uh, you know, creative agenda. It's definitely still there. It's just uh, not in the terms that were, you know, uh. You didn't know the word narrativist at the time, but you're narrativist. Yes, exactly. Right. Like, you, here's how my model, here's how this system uh, incorporates, right, how it works here.
2: And I want to say there is something really seductive, even as it's off-putting, about this, which is, Ron Edwards made a really good game in Sorcerer, and a really influential game, and does understand something about role-playing games, and about role-playing game tables, the experience of playing role-playing games, in which- he can ask interesting questions and lead people to have interesting conversations, and and think about their games in in really um, uh, uh, both. Um, productive and therapeutic ways. I think the the other example, the one that you mentioned, uh, White coming with this experience uh, uh, in which he shows up and uh, to a to a convention D and D game and gets this real railroady experience that ends in what amounts to a uh, a Final Fantasy cutscene, yes. a video game and JRPG cutscene. And I think that in my mind, I thought that what would happen when when he posted that was like everyone would dunk on it and be like, ugh, like ugh, the video game world is getting into into tabletop people who grew up on Final Fantasy are playing D&D now and they're ruining it. And like, partly it's because I had this experience. Mm -hmm. This is when I was in college playing D&D and d and like the d the the DM had us fight you know monsters with thousands of points of hit thousands of hit points and would would end with a big cutscene where we didn't a big you know a, a quote unquote cutscene where another hero comes in and gets the killing blow or the villain gets away at the end or there's a second form or whatever because that's what that is the storytelling model that that you've internalized from. Final Fantasy. And, and the reason I expected that sort of dismissal is because of the Vampire the Masquerade uh-huh. stuff. That's another, this is another instance where people's exposure to a type of storytelling shapes a type of storytelling. But here, instead of being dismissive and uh, aggressive and frankly, like, kind of weirdly, physiologically wrong-headed uh, about everything, um, Ron Edwards is, has this deep curiosity. Oh, is the form changing? Huh, what how might the inclusion of a of a of a thing like a cutscene or the the separation of uh player you know success from narrative failure, how might that produce something new in effect? Mm-hmm. And there's this whole conversation around it. And it's like yeah, that rules. That's the that's <laughs> such a better conversation than the one I thought you were about to have. And I get why the Forge was interesting for people in that moment. And also, why couldn't you bring any of that to the Vampire of the Masquerade? <laughs> it's like, wild. you just have a really bad play experience? What happened? He's so good. I mean,
1: basically, yes. He's so good at asking questions. Like, that's the thing. Is you yeah. get this chapter that front loads him being a huge jerk in all these ways. And then the back half, he's like, he is so good at asking like these precisely right questions to like get a piece of information information about the play experience and it's incredible
2: and also it's the last thing in this book <laughs> that's what, there's another chapter that we'll get to sort of um but like it's the last piece of an of of history of in this book of him being like here's what the forge was why didn't the book start like this
1: That's what I'm saying. If I could have
2: done one thing, I would have started with this chapter or some version of it that grounds what is. Again, we come back to this 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 forge talk of like what is quote unquote really happening in on the forge. What does the actual play of the forge look like? And it looks like this. It looks like these back and forth conversations in which questions are being asked and topics are being unpacked. And and sometimes a too harsh or severe or uh, uh, limited diagnostic tool is put on top of it, and it limits it in some way. Because I think that's what, what where you were going, Cameron, with this mm-hmm. Frost Folk example. That at the end, he then also has to just say, uh, "Yeah, you're you're just this thing. Move along." You know. Um, but the questions, I think, are good.
0: Well, I think part of it too, right? Is like uh, they. I think you said this earlier, Austin. Is like you could just. If parts of this chapter were were in chapter two, yeah. what's going on at the for- forge would be a lot more elucidated. Right now, you kind of have, like, a little bit of a build-your-own-book, mm-hmm. right? Like, like oh, hey, I with all this information, now at the end of the book, I can synthesize this all together, and it's really good. But I would have much rather had this all synth- synthesized for me and then analyzed, mm-hmm. right? Like, what's going on here? But, But, yeah, the idea that, like, this is... The, waiting to the end of the book to find out what the lure of going to the forge is uh-huh. it, is a really weird experience. Um, I really and I'm do glad recommend- that I made it through the book. Yeah, yes, go ahead, I
2: do recommend. If you're thinking about teaching something from this book. Looking at this final chapter and especially yeah. the stuff from uh actual play as dialogic genre from 195 through the end of the chapter, the stuff on the frostfolk, which we don't have to go through beat by beat, uh, uh is so good it is it is it is these long exchanges between the creator or the a player in this game with a homebrew system. Uh, and and ron in which in which you get these great first-person phenomenological accounts of what was happening at the table what people what got people excited uh where they were zeroing in on play experiences that were uh, uh the kind of fundamental draw of playing the game all of that stuff is so good and it's re- and it's uh placed here kind of not in full but at, at real long uh, uh in really long form really unfolds itself here and i think that you get a really great sense uh, from this one exercise Excerpt of what a really productive back and forth in this model uh, could be like. And it's what now has moved to discords. It's what it now has moved to slacks. Uh, it does not exist in the, in the public sphere in the same way anymore. And that is what I, that is what I, leaving this chapter, I was like, damn, I wish I could go read 13 of these conversations happening today without having to
0: join 13 different discords, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, well, an additional thing, too, is that the breakdown of how this happens also transformed, right? It's not just that it's moved, but Mm, that uh so much of it is dedicated to analyzing your game, right? right. Uh, You know, people doing after-action reports on their feelings about your product, you know, Friends at the Table, as as a media form, right? Oh, yeah. That's much different. Right, like media analysis of the TTRPG is might be bigger than analysis of people's own games, just in terms of how many people are saying words about it every day.
1: Um, Maybe,
2: but I will say I think we are in a real boom for creators who've gone beyond anything like that. I, we just got this question on a on a Patreon friends at the table question, or you know, a, a podcast Q and A mm-hmm. Q&A podcast that we do, um, where someone wrote in and basically said, "What do you think of the influence you've had on?" Tabletop role on t- tabletop role playing games and independent role playing games, uh, and of course, I think that you know I'm not going to repeat everything we said. We talked for like 30 minutes about this, sure. but my biggest point is that the world of tabletop role playing games, even independent, you know, internety, queer, leftist, even that that's the smallest niche you get into. We are a tiny, you know, atom inside of a mm-hmm. much larger molecule, m- much of which is so far away from us that it has no in- no understanding that we even exist, or is doing stuff so different from us and so unique and cool. So I actually do think that this, and I do think a lot of that stuff is still happening. You know, mm-hmm. I I have been in the discords where people who are making games are going back and forth about their own product uh, about their own projects. I have seen the people who release really interesting half finished RPGs on itch and then iterate on them over the course of a year. Two. Um, I think that it is as rich as it's ever been, and and to be a technological determinist, I actually think it is because of the the platforms like itch and about you know the increase in in uh, the the adoption of the PDF as the final form of a work instead of it needing to be a print release or something like that. Yeah, I think sure. a lot of that stuff. Has led to a second renaissance, a 18th renaissance of independent <laughs> role-playing games. Again, this is what you right. said last episode. Uh, you know about the Peterson book. Is like it's all just the same stuff over and over again, from critiques of D D through independent production. Uh, and I do think it's still happening. I just think it's happening in. in Pri- more pri- the, the conversations are more private, the projects are more public. I can go on Itch right now and look – I mean we just did this in the, the uh, episode of Friends at the Table. We literally hit a break point where we are like, ah, I think we need to play a different game to solve this. I went mm-hmm. on Itch. I found a different game. I found this game called uh, animation uh, An- An- aminesis which is a tarot based uh, game about about getting um uh having a a kind of um an amnesiac uh experience in a small kind of kafka-esque town a strange town um mm-hmm. i guess maybe that's how we played it and we all like i found that and we we downloaded it i bought it and we played it and we had a great time and like i could not have done that 20 years mm-hmm. ago period right. uh and i think that that is um uh but, and I think you can draw the line to the forge, but you can also draw a line to again these these new sh- shifts in the technologies of communication and production. And so like I think we are still in a place where this stuff is happening. It's just not apparent uh, in in the same ways. and I think that that's what frustrates me
0: mm-hmm. well, I guess uh, partially what I'm thinking of too, like I think you're exactly right. Like obviously, it's still occurring and in really powerful ways, but I, but I think about you know the sheer number of um, say, like, how to be a better role player, how mm. to be a better DM, like, yeah, say, yeah, YouTube yeah. channels, yes. right? With millions yes. of subscribers, which is really, a huge number of that is about them after-actioning reporting their own content, mm-hmm. right? Where You know, like, the, go watch the show and then come back and talk about it. Or them after-actioning reporting Critical Role, critical right? Role. And being like, yeah. this is how yeah. they achieved XYZ, right? Yeah. Like, like, you're 100% right, all this other st- stuff is still happening, but, but the Molecule you know, in a general sense yeah. is so dominated by what what I think is talked about is design analysis, but which is actually media criticism mm-hmm. You're uh, totally just right. under a different name. Right. And so I wonder about that. Right. Like the the what the you know to get away from ron edwards right it's not it's not brain damage right it's a shifting uh, diagram of what we yes. think the media yes. does mm-hmm. right it's go the materialist the show.
2: form of it i do love go watch the show as the contemporary go read the threat
0: <laughs> <laughs> go watch go watch the show and because it means uh, the same thing
2: right it means yes. hey go consume the fundamental Lexicon. Go learn the, the the basics so we can have the conversation because we're going to have the conversation in those terms. We're mm-hmm. going to talk about what happened at the finale of this season of Critical Role, and that's the 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 toolbox that we're going to deploy. How did uh, what is his name? I almost said McCree, which is extremely <laughs> wrong now. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is his name? Well, I, I did a podcast with this guy once. Oh my god.
0: Uh, I don't hear uh, hair. Matt Mercer, I got it, I got it in my
2: brain, I got it in my brain, Um, Matt Mercer
0: (laughs) Not an Overwatch Uh,
1: character
2: (laughs) Yeah, you know, no, (laughs) but he plays one, Um, but like that's the, the toolbox is what did, or or the the common, uh, the common, the common space of of this dialogue, the required reading is what did Matt Mercer do at this finale, right?
0: Yeah, exactly you're right you're uh right. you know what are the differences between uh an austin walker a uh uh matt mercer a b david walters right, right like right. like yeah. schools of thought design ideas different different forms of creative creative agenda disciplining essentially right in the Foucauldian mm-hmm. sense of that of like alignment right those are now attached to people who are treated as character types mm-hmm. rather than you know, you being a human being who runs a game. Right. Yeah, and are. and there are implications for that. Right. You know, uh, and that something that the, something this book does a very good job of, I think in a general sense is it, is it says, here's a figure that we can see that happening very clearly through in the forum era. And that would give anyone a very good kind of handle to then think about that transforming, Again, like you were saying, in a technologically kind of deterministic way, which some people are very negative on, and I'm not. I think technology has a huge, you know, (laughs) I'm a naive determinist, as I like to say. Look, uh, uh, algorithmic social media does stuff to you. And if you don't think so great <laughs> and
2: if you don't think so it's because algorithmic social media made you not think so
0: it, it made you have like an absolute liberalism of the mind that's totally yes. cool right like
2: we're all individual uh, actors uh, right. floating among we only we pick up and choose to use things around us
0: they right. don't affect us it's like there's some sort of marketplace of ideas that uh, <laughs> you're not coerced into in any kind of way but uh, but but that's kind of like the the gist of the end uh, of this chapter right and then it gives us this kind of of Uh, gesture into it moving into different places you know in my notes i had to put this in here that like Uh, None of this is very shocking none of the form of this is very shocking both in what michael you were talking about before which is like This is a a type of form, you know that engagement happens with But also that like if you're paying attention to science fiction communities or fantasy communities or any or like the sherlock community right after this Mm -hmm. You're gonna see a lot of the same behavior showing up So there's there's a there's a way in this That a lot of this feels very unique in this book, but is actually pretty banal uh, Mm -hmm. If you think about it in the kind of environmental context, but uh, chapter six: Designs and Discussions. Uh, very curious about what both Michael, you think about this, and then Austin, what you think about it, in very different ways. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, like, <laughs> hmm, how to read uh, this? Yeah, I, like,
1: I, I don't know what Cameron is expecting here. Now, now, i now, there are expectations, and I feel like I might. It's discipline. not an expectation.
0: Okay. No, 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 no. It's not an expectation, but it's uh, the the last chapter of this book is that white designs a game that you can play to kind of procedural rhetoric up a version of what happened in the book. Mm-hmm. So for you to play your way through air er, er, with ergodicity involved, mm-hmm. I, I'm unsure about the use of that term here, but uh, you well, know, both you're procedural
2: rhetoric are used.
0: Right. Yeah. That's Ian why I'm, I'm referencing them. Yeah. Yes. They both kind of show up. They like academic up what's happening in this chapter, but so, you know, uh, Austin, you know, I'm curious about your perspective because yeah. uh, this, this they make a game <laughs> and I'm curious if the game, uh, you know, does the thing that's supposed to. And I think that you probably have some insight on that I, more, I, more I have, than well, I would. I haven't
2: played it. So I can't speak to actual play. I can't right. actually I can only which wouldn't be allowed on the forge. You know, I'd have to go talk of about course. that, you know, because I haven't played it. So I can't ground it in an actual play experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Check out which, our bonus
0: episode in which we play through. I'm kidding. Don't <laughs> promise. that. We're I, not going to do that.
2: I didn't think about pitching that and then i read the game and i was like yeah i don't think this is gonna be that fun to Uh, play and then Um, just before you dive into it the
0: the the, the reason for michael the reason i'm curious is that there's a lot of like theatrical and procedural rhetoric assumptions built in here michael Mm -hmm. that i'm curious if you have a perspective on but you don't have to but that's why i'm curious like for me it's just reading this thing and being like all right this is like a teachy rpg that i would not personally be interested in playing because i don't think this argument is actually best communicated through a game and that's kind of like where my brain turned off i was just like i don't i don't buy the claim and so i'm i'm unwilling to go along with the argument which is all me and has nothing to do with white right but you each have a different approach or different you know uh um a creative agenda when it comes to <laughs> reading the final chapter and so i'm curious about i like
2: the the fake game i don't know, actually maybe these are maybe this is a transcript of play i like the transcript of play of these people um i you know what I'm gonna say I imagine they are it is real because like these are real people mm-hmm. uh, so along with the rules throughout the rules there are there's a running transcript of people playing the game giving you know commentary to to uh, the rules as they're laid out uh, and then kind of summarizing their their moves at the table. Um, the game is about, being on the forums uh, about you you create a poster, uh, which is why I'm curious about what Michael thinks. You, you create <laughs> someone who posts, uh, you give them yeah. certain attributes. They have things like social, a social savvy score, design chops, business savvy, technical savvy, wordsmithing and artistic ability. They have a certain background. They have scores for drive and indie cred. They have tokens to spend. And then the game is about like making posts, engaging with topics. And then, and then in between posting um, going off to make a thing, uh, and you have like a turn in which you go off and you try to make something, and then you roll to see how good it is, and you roll to see how how good is the content, uh, how you know unique is the form, and how far is the reach or something like that. Um, and I, I, you know, as a game, I don't know, but reading about reading these people create their. Like 2002 internet geek OCs uh-huh. is extremely funny to me. The, like the one who is like, I like Shadow, Shatter- I'd make Shadowrun supplements, uh, and I like Shadowrun, but my version's like a little bit cooler. And the Germans really <laughs> yes? like it. it's
1: extremely good. <laughs> the person whose character, like their online handle is Harlequin, uh, and he doesn't oh! <laughs> understand why everyone assumes he's a girl. <laughs> like that's his character note. It's so funny.
2: Uh... It's so funny. So that stuff makes this chapter worth it for me. No, I, I think that it's, I think it's fun to see the practice, what you preach. Like, hey, we believe, I mean, this is said on one of the last pages on the book, of the book. Uh, of the book. Uh, quote, I have to scroll through all this stuff, I should probably just have this Is The idea that a game is about something is another way of saying that a game is a kind of argument. Again, referencing Ian Bogost's procedural rhetoric here. Um, if that is true, and if that's a thing that's forge-like in belief, then it's. Then I think it's fundamentally cool that you end this with a, a game that's trying to argue something about what this was. Um, and I think the thing that it argues, basically, is... That it's – it reminds me a lot of of Darius uh, Kazemi's uh, Kazemi's, um, lottery talk Mm -hmm. from XOXO, (laughs) right? Because the rules of this thing are not about choice. It's not about making good decisions. You know, maybe there's strategic play to be made when it comes to where you spend your tokens in this game or something. But it has all of these obtuse rules about, like – well, you're rolling to succeed, and, and uh, if you, or you're rolling to see how many points you get in your content score. And if you roll a one, or if you hit a prime number, then you can re-roll it next turn, and you can continue to progress. And if you roll a cube, and it's like, none of this is about decision-making. None of this is about reading the forms and actually understanding what is successful. It's just luck, baby. That's the argument that's being made by this. And the rest of this book doesn't actually make this argument. But this is like a kind of nihilistic or at least cynical read on what works and what doesn't, what does and doesn't find audiences and what ends up being influential. And I find that fascinating given the rest of the work here.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I understood that. Right, like obviously that's where this goes and i got it at the end but where i didn't understand that until about halfway through when i got to dice mechanics on page 238 yes and then it's like uh, i'm just going to read this you can step dice up and down i I really don't know why that matters i mean in a general sense i could Uh, reconstruct uh, it i guess but you know it's written in and it's like it uses polyhedral dice and when you can step you can step them up and down polyhedrally but you never roll the polyhedral dice. You only roll platonic solids. <laughs> and so you round up and down based on what what polyhedral die goes to the next platonic solid. And then I was like, this is so goddamn arbitrary. My clemency <laughs> and, owl is and, and, hooting
1: because the etiquette monstrance is filled. <laughs>
0: And then I was like, "Oh my God, it's arbitrary." So yes, I like. I'm a hundred percent. I was like, "This is a very successful." If this is what the thing is arguing for, but yeah, it basically is the clemency. CL.
2: <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Roll to get smarter. <laughs> yes. It's so funny. There's a rule in this book. For each for each ability the character has with one or more points of accumulated XP, the player may roll a die. XP's in that ability in excess of one are added to the total. If the roll comes up equal or greater to half the highest value of the die, the result is a success. Otherwise, it's a failure. And I, it's just, uh, wow. This chapter, a-
0: reading it made me go, William White might be cool. <laughs> yes. Like You don't always read a book and get a sense of like what someone is mm-hmm. like. You know, as a person, but reading this, I was like, William might, might be a cool, cool I person. Mean, <laughs> I, like I mean, my, my
1: take on this, since you asked for it, was like, I love yes. the idea of making a tabletop game about posting. I think that is so good. <laughs> um <laughs>
2: I think you could hack this to be about anything. That's, Michael. that.
1: That was my thought as I was reading it, and I was like, "Oh, how do I? How do I start like stripping this for parts? Basically,
2: <laughs> um, I think you could make a homestuck this, or just a general, you know, early two thousands, mid two thousands. You could broaden it from game design."
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was what like uh, the thing that I was thinking about the game itself was like it, in a weird way. It mimics kind of one of the critiques we've had of the book, which is that this the game as it is written works the best. If you already know all of the stuff that the book is about, <laughs> like if you're familiar with it outside right. of the book. Right. If you because there's a bit where they're doing like character creation or something and you can um, you can like. Uh, point to like you can ask the, the DM if they're uh, or you can try to like how do I put this you can like argue for advantages for yourself based on like historical cultural developments and there's like a person who's mm-hmm. like oh Lord of the Rings has just come out like Fellowship of the Ring has just come out so I should get some sort of like bonus to some sort of role Um, and that requires you to be able to think up on the fly or like to take like a research break where everyone at the table can go to Wikipedia and look up like what happened in 2001. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, and then that's like, you know, the, the, you have to like choose a background for like, what is, what is kind of the game that your character most often plays? And like one of them is the Amber Diceless RPG, (laughs) which is just like.
2: it's so specific i mean even the the german Shadowrun fan thing is also this right like oh here's a subset of internet person you may have known or person you may have known on the internet in this era right right
1: and um and i think it all you know works and i think it seems like a really fun game and i love this idea uh but it is also like if you are a person who is trying to learn about like tabletop games or something and like you come in, it's like the Amber Diceless RPG. You can have an RPG without dice. And like, they have a discussion in this chapter. It's like, yeah, at this point there was like this huge, like uh discussion happening over like, Oh, what if we, what if Diceless RPGs are the next big thing? <laughs> like,
2: I mean, that's the part of this. I love is I would love the version of this game. That is the alt history of this space where like, yeah, for whatever reason uh-huh. you've succeeded at making Diceless, the new hot thing. Um Because I mean, Again, I think this is the chapter – it's either this chapter or maybe late last chapter where they do end up getting to the heart of what does end up succeeding the Forge, which is powered by the Apocalypse games. And I would say Forge in the Dark stuff to the Bakers, uh, Vincent and McGay Baker and then and then John Harper. Um, uh, the work that they do is, is that um, during the Forge era, there was the notion that what a game could be. Uh, would be something where you took the decision making. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a replica of what the Peterson book ended up being about. That D D closed it in on itself and started to define itself better. And the Forge mm. game would say instead of saying a player has to complete this game with their own with their own work at home, we're going to finalize the game and give you a version of it that's about something that has an argument that has a, a thematic core, and you're not going to have to. Uh, Fix it at the table because because thoughtful design has already given you the best possible version of it because it's engaged in this creative agenda big model stuff uh, and then the thing that actually happens that doesn't really get unfolded here but it does get gestured at is that what Vincent Baker realized is that it's really fun at the table to make decisions and to make your own stuff and so one of the core things about Apocalypse World is that you make your own moves is that you make Big decisions as a player at the table. And now I would say the same thing with like Dream Askew from Avery Alder, which is a GM-less game or it's a GM full game. It's a game where everybody controls different aspects of the of of play. Someone's in control of like, you know, the authority, someone's in control of the weather, someone's in control of technology, on top of having their own player characters. The move has been towards that and away from this idea of um uh you know everything's this kind of closed perfect object that if you play right, you can produce a good story out of. It's like encouraging the sort of collaboration at the design level. And what I love about this this role-playing game is it asks us or it produces the ability to maybe get there first and then wind up somewhere else. You know, it says imagine a world in which the diceless system, which is like what Dream Askew is, becomes the big thing in the mid-2000s. And that's so fascinating as a rhetorical, mm-hmm. like, it doesn't get it doesn't get anywhere final it's never going to answer anything for you but that's not the point of uh, that's not the point of dialogic discourse, and it's not the point of, of uh, I think, you know, play. I think the answer is to be productive in, in all directions. Like, I, I've, this is very Deleuzian of me, I think, you know, in terms of what my objectives are. Uh, it's about unrooting things here or, or revealing that, that that structure was never a root to begin with. Um, uh, and I think that this game actually does that to some degree. And so, in that way, this is the most theory that exists in the book. Mm-hmm. I yes. like it. And he does seem cool. So, you know, shout outs. Yeah.
0: I'm into mm-hmm. it.
2: Michael, if you hack this, I'll play it.
0: Okay. All right. If <laughs> well, you make if you, this just generally you know.
2: about posting on a form in the mid 2000s, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to bury this at the end of the uh at the end of the show here. We're working on a TRPG. Let's fucking go. Michael. It's not, not about posting though. It's not mm-hmm. about But feel free to post. I'm about also it.
2: working on something, but
0: you can feel free to play oh yeah. yeah if you want to play it yeah uh we, we got to do some testing doing but we are in the final stages or, or the mid stages i would say we've already commissioned art so we're at oh, that okay stage you're yeah 100 of, percent of, of, of text not locked but all the ideas are in and i am working on it every night and i'm sending Mike can you messages. tell me
2: one thing that's extremely cameron or
0: michael about it
2: i'll trade you i'll trade you one can, thing of my okay. of mine it's very <laughs> austin
0: so. You can be a precocious child.
2: <laughs> oh, I have that in my game also. With,
0: with TK abilities. How about Oh, yet? okay. That's a bear.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, you can get a plus one sentence in my game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the,
0: uh, that's very good. Oh, uh, one. Uh, there are very few stats, but one is... The power of friendship. Mm -hmm. Oh,
2: I love it. I'm excited Mm -hmm.
0: now. It's going to be good, it's going to be fun. Uh, are we done with this book i think we're done with this book oh i guess the other thing to say and and this this is a michael uh but i'm gonna i'm gonna share it is that uh the game has lots of charts that are full of michael's most deranged ideas
1: (laughs) oh i love it if you've ever wanted to see uh like seven charts written by me this is the game to play
0: (laughs) they're just pure glossolalia of what michael's thinking about at any given moment (laughs) that used to prop gin something up we got those charts It's really just a lot of procedural generation stuff, so it's going to be very exciting.
2: That's fun. I mean, that's the other thing about this is I wish this book kept going. Like, I want, I do want the the thing I'm thinking about here is this book briefly talks about the old school renaissance the osr movement which has only grown and diversified since this book was written Mm -hmm. um and and the the book really only talks about it in the kind of late 2000s and not about like the kind of boom in the mid 2010s um it's like i i would read one of these every 10 years forever about like what happened in in role-playing games in the last decade um and so I, i think that that's to its credit like despite my frustrations with its structure and its layout uh, or not its layout, but its its kind of its structure, or where where its chapters are, where uh, it, it's it's dropping in these big quotes, et cetera. And despite my wish that it had more theoretical uh, uh, engagement with some of this, just the the work of here is what was happening for a decade in this one niche uh, corner, but influential corner of the RPG world. I would read that forever. So uh, someone out there get rid, make that for the following ten years because it's been it has. This yeah. is from what to what? This is from two thousand one to
1: two thousand twelve. Two thousand two.
2: Yeah, there you go. So it's been a decade. Uh, what happened? What happened? The forge
1: now? is long cold, but somewhere <laughs> ember still burns. It's on itch.io. <laughs> I guess there's, n-
2: there's no.
0: Because... The, the website has existed for 10 years, but there's still no shopping cart. <laughs> <laughs> I understand uh, why, but it's still quite odd.
2: I think the problem is a lot of the Google Plus stuff isn't archived, and I think that's right. a real problem.
0: But. Right. I actually went looking for some of that. So uh, another thing to, to share, I guess, is that Danny, who I mentioned before, Mage's Murder yeah. Dads. Uh, uh, the Great show. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, Range Touch co-founder. Danny has been working on uh, World of Adventure. Uh, his like a TRPG for a long time. You know, it's in some of the earliest Range Touch stuff. We talk about it. It's a living document. He has been working on it consistently. I would say us, but really it's, it's kind of his, his project. And so like, you know, he has time to work on it and sometime where he doesn't, but it's a real thing and we've play tested it at least once um and stuff like that but he actually has gotten into diceless stuff (laughs) over the past like couple months and he's just constantly sending me like information about diceless systems from the like the 80s that are wild uh so you know that's another thing to be on the lookout for and uh doing that but you know i think he's taken a lot of influence too by a lot of the the newer stuff coming out on itch but i i agree i agree austin i think this book is you know, like I said the, at the beginning of the show many hours ago, <laughs> <after> <laughs> us listening, uh, and for us existing, uh, you know, it's a great, whatever qualms I have about it, right? It is ultimately a great book of reportage. It it is a it is a document of things that occurred that might be obscure or difficult to understand and contextualize. And uh, White does such a good job of contextualizing everything with these follow up interviews that it gives you a picture of what occurred and then how people thought about it afterward. And that is a type of book that we just don't really have that much of in game studies, just to be frank. Uh, We need more of it, that media studies, especially film studies, half of the field are these kind of books. That is not the case. It's less than fifteen percent, I think, of game <laughs> studies books, and it's only recently that people have been writing them. And that's partially why I'm working on the Magic: The Gathering project mm-hmm. is that I want to be able to capture not this level of community granularity, but what happened over twenty five years for a thing that's really big and influential, and which no one has written a long work on mm-hmm. yet, astonishingly, uh, or at least not one that is academic in nature. Nature. Right, right, so, right. sure. Um, yeah. Anyway. Looking now I'm the, I'm the owner of uh, a complete collection of the Duelist magazine Ooh. which very few people are. Ooh, oh. it, it only took eBay for 6 full months <laughs> to get <it. laughs> Michael, what'd you think about this book?
1: Um, I thought this was pretty good. I mean, it was it was extreme as you said, uh good reportage, like very informative uh, for me as someone who like w- w- moved in like a weird parallel orbit to all of this stuff, and then at some point, like maybe probably around the time Friends at the Table launched, was like, Oh, tabletop can actually be fun and rewarding.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it it's really good.
1: Uh, not that I had bad times when I was I was younger. I just had like, you know, I, I was yeah. No, you think it's a thing. It it could be another thing. You know, I I was the guy who was, like, beating the drum, like, I bought this Call of Cthulhu book. Please, someone let me run a game. (laughs) Uh, We tried it twice, and it was a shambles every time. So (laughs) it turns out games can also just be stories and that there were people having these conversations and making these games. And uh, I think that's really cool.
0: Yeah, I really wish. It really made me because you know i was in college like uh, you know uh, toward the end of the forage i guess and it really made me think wow if only i'd been introduced to this culture uh i could have had way i I could have played more rpgs like in college Mm -hmm. you know when you have a lot of time to do that kind of thing and they would have been more interesting instead of playing like you know, the, like uh, like you were talking about, Austin, like a D20 style, what what Mutants I, and Masterminds is the... Title. Yeah, totally. Yeah, which is like, not for mm-hmm. me, right? Well, like, but like, we I, wanted I be, it to be so bad,
2: but... I should be clear, I was lurking this forum at the time, in mm-hmm. college, you know, I was in college uh, from 2003 to 2007, this is when this boom is happening, and I still basically only got to play D20 games on... Or not D20 games, but, you know, there's a big fight in this mm-hmm. book between... Uh, John Wick and Ron Edwards. John Wick, uh, uh, who made Legend of the Five Rings. Uh, and a Always enjoy when that and name showed L- up, by the way. Oh, which, yeah, yeah. uh huh. L- I was an L5R player, both the card game and the RPG at the time. Like, I ran the first Friends at the Table like thing I ran was an L5R game. Uh, I have lots of issues with the setting at this point, as it is 100% like a bunch of white dudes from the States doing their best, like, uh, appropriation of Eastern. Uh, East Asian uh, mythology and culture uh, at the time I thought wow cool samurai uh, wow cool magic samurai <laughs> Wow um, cool rings <laughs> uh, wow cool rings you can get all of them and then you get enlightenment um, yeah. uh, anyway um, uh, it was very funny to see that name come up and mostly we were still playing those games you know and and I was doing the stuff that I would end up doing in friends of the table in terms of like interest do my best to be experimental with form uh, I we definitely did a whole season uh, a whole season a whole campaign. Uh, they were not see I mean it was a semester long long campaign. Or it was mm-hmm. a two semester long campaign in which we played like descendants of the previous characters that they would played, that my my players had played as, and like they would find like letters between their previous protagonists, and then we would do that as like a frame story or an inter- interior story of the frame we'd set up. So it's like I was doing that stuff, but mostly with games like L five R and D and D, because no one wanted to play the Forge stuff. It was like me and art and like our partners at the time, and that was it. The bigger group did not want to play Burning Wheel with us. The bur- mm-hmm. the bigger group did not want to play Sorcerer, did not want to play like. And so, and so, you know, even then, I think you would have found that you would have been the person who really wanted to play some of this stuff and couldn't get people excited because, like, it wasn't D twenty, and the D twenty boom was so real and so big.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, my introduction to all this was you know D and D three point five and then yep. fourth edition, and yeah, the the way that it ate up you know mind share in the world, in uh, the way it still does. I mean, you oh, know, yeah. just just it. I feel it less oppressively that way, but yes, yes. Oh, I th- You know what? I think we'll continue to do this literally all day long. Yeah, if I don't say this. the episode is over now. So, the episode is over now. Next, next month, what are we reading? <laughs> next month, we're going to be reading Gary Allen Fine's Shared Fantasy. Wait a fantasy. second, wait a second, wait
2: a second. Yeah. Uh,
0: sorry, uh, I thought it was summer next month. Well, it is summer. What's so sum- I don't, is there something special? The I think there's
2: something special about the summer.
0: Well, that's the thing is that we have the transition into summer I see. Of, of June, which allows two things to happen. It allows us to read Gary Allen Fine's Shared Fantasy, which came up a few times in this book, kind of the first academic book written on tabletop role-playing games. mm mm-hmm. But it also begins the summer of classics. <laughs> <Folks> this is <hopeful> <methylation> me as a fan going, "Woo!" I'm in the
2: audience oh, aisle. <laughs> <laughs> he said it. He said the thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: it is the summer of classics. But and so yeah, so we're we're doing we've done a beautiful thing of uh, moving our kind of small unit on uh, uh, tabletop stuff into the summer of classics by finding the perfect bridge text. Uh, between those things. And we still have not decided what the summer of classics is. <laughs> so, uh, but, but when this episode comes out in the tweet in which we announce it or attached to that tweet or in a tweet directly afterward on the range touch account, twitter.com slash range touch, we will have a full list of the summer of classics, which will go from June, July, August, and then September. Uh, there still huge debates is October and summer is September summer. We're still wi- willing to hear it, but it I seems feel like, like I people was agree.
2: October is summer? <laughs> some people are.
0: We've had people say what? December is still summer if, in your mm-hmm. heart. Oh, in your heart, yeah. yeah but they say happens. I live in Australia. <laughs> I, live in
2: Australia. <laughs> I live in Australia. It's, the summer. Yeah. That's it's a- the summer. That's it's summer. That's some people point, have said yeah.
0: it. They've said it. They say we we go to the beach on Christmas. <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> we eat hot dogs. Christmas hot, dog. hot dogs down there. Yeah. Oh, they Ooh. love a hot dog in Australia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is me doing a ron edwards they love hot dogs in australia <laughs> they can't help it they just love it it's it's just in them
2: it's in their nature yeah, it's uh-huh. in their nature <sighs> uh
0: but thanks so much for listening to this episode thanks so much to austin thanks for joining us for this of episode course. i think it, this might be the longest episode of the show five star runtimes, times baby yeah. Yeah. it is five star runtimes. uh i don't know why i thought because at the beginning... You're a fool. I didn't want to correct you when you said this. I know. I, know. I said, I said, hey, we're going to go for an hour and a half, two hours. And, and then I thought, as soon as I said that, it's me and Michael and uh-huh. Austin.
2: And Austin. In Austin what Walker. Uni- yeah. yeah. In
0: what universe could that be true?
2: <laughs> Talking about a book about weirdo role-playing game experts. <laughs> right.
0: But your expertise was appreciated. Uh, and uh, thanks so much for joining mm-hmm. us. It's
2: truly and... a blast and honor. Like, this is you should know this is my favorite podcast. Oh, like, I, I'm i a, a range touched head. Like, do you have a name? Is there an, are, what are we? Touchies, or are we? Touches? Rangers, Rangers. No, no, Ooh, it was, it we're range. not touchies. You we're can be ranges. honchos sometimes. Ooh. If you sometimes, Ooh. according
0: to Michael, you're a honcho.
2: I could be a honcho, I could be a yeah, ranger that's... or a honcho. I feel like that's but, but I, I truly do. Like, I'm I am caught up on everything except for Mages and Murder Dads because y'all just started the new season
0: mm-hmm, of that. We did.
2: Uh, I'm excited to get to that, but but I am really in awe of the work that y'all have done. Uh, I really think uh, you know the two of you, Danny, produce incredible content. Um, really, really great blend of. Uh, really thoughtful criticism uh, and uh, kind of on the boots on the, boots on the ground uh, media media you know criticism and fan work. Like, I think that there is something really special about the enthusiasm you bring while also not issuing that sort of uh, ability to to step back and and do the critical work that that deserves to be done for this stuff. So thank you for making stuff that I love to listen to. That's well, my five star review, by the way. I just you, gotta put, you gotta put that
0: in somewhere. You gotta get on uh, Apple Podcasts. You gotta write that in.
2: Okay, I'll do my best. And, you,
0: and your name, has, the subject line has to be I Am Really awesome. <laughs> uh, but we, we appreciate it. Thank you, you know, and we appreciate your support on the show. You, you tweet about it, you tell people to listen to do it, and best. that probably Other has brought in like a huge number of people. Uh, to the show and uh, probably a bunch of people are only listening to this because you're on it like you know this particular episode so if you I think made it all the episodes way are here better I think people should go listen to the other episodes which are great I agree I think they should also listen to those but I, I do want to commend them if they got to three <laughs> three hours and 45 minutes here at the end shout out to you, <laughs> <laughs> if, you if you got here oh, I see the numbers doing I know, I know when people stop listening mm-hmm. oh my yeah. god <laughs> Oh, God.
2: We yeah, that's what you're big doing big on Just King Things is it, right? That's going to be a big one. Oh, yeah. we will yeah, get through it. It'll be great. Uh, can I recommend episodes really quick of this show? Yeah, sure. I think people should listen to your episode on Flow, which is episode 23. Uh, I think people should listen to your episode on Communities of Play by Celia Pierce, which is episode 21. I think people should listen to your episode on uh, The King of Kong if you're scared of academic works and just want to get to know the two of you more. I think that's a very fun episode uh, uh, that engages with something that is not as – not as, uh, again, academic as you you might think. Um, And I think people should listen to your episode on – Oh, why am I forgetting the name of the book and the theorist? It's really bad that I am. Um, uh, uh, cricket. Uh, uh, Beyond a Boundary. The mm. C.L.R. James Beyond a Boundary uh, episode, uh, which I listened to uh, in the Indianapolis airport <laughs> on my way to Gen Con.
0: Wow. Brought it all back together. Yeah. Fuck. Uh, Michael and I have an essay coming out about CLR James at some point. Yes, good. Probably in the next year. It's basically just what we said on the show hey, people should read CLR James. <laughs> and here's you all should. the reasons you should. Yeah. But, but that will be coming out at some point. Oh, and um, the
2: most important one, that I actually made a note about, is Ron Cierre's The Ignorant Schoolmaster, a book Ron Edwards needs
0: to read badly. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Little did you know, Ron Edwards, there is a normative human function, but it's not the one you think.
2: <laughs> I shouldn't norm- say, like, should I? Ron Edwards is a real person who, yeah, yeah, who exists. Course. And I was very, like, that was very, I'm talking to a media object uh, right. uh, of me. But I think I was thinking about the ignorant schoolmaster constantly while reading this book and reading Edwards's uh, methodology of, of interaction and, like, both in positive and negative ways. So,
0: yeah. I agree. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, we have to end the episode. But thinking of the forge is like an educational tool in the way that it intersects with the great schoolmaster. A lot going on there. Someone Um, should write that. that Someone should write that. Also write that. That's another free paper idea. (laughs) Free term paper idea. Uh, Okay. Well, thanks so much, everyone, for listening to the episode. Thanks again, Austin, for being here. We will be back uh, next month with another episode uh, on uh, shared fantasy. And uh until next time what's the catchphrase Michael? The social is predicated
1: on its exclusions. I gotta and tell y'all.
0: That was a good clap. <laughs> I'll put that at the end of the episode. Yeah, Everyone okay. wants to know if Austin Walker thinks it's a good clap or not. <laughs> yeah. It's a big big part of the big part of the draw, I It's having a big draw, show. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the uh okay the uh and then let's do another one at 50